Glenn Fleischman, it is so good to have you back on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back. There is so much going on. There's <laughs> a lot going on. Uh, a lot going on this and week. Which is good news, I guess, if you're in the business of talking about stuff that's going on. Uh, it's bad news if you're like me and at a couple of weeks here where it's just been really hard to make time to record a podcast. I feel like I'm looking at the show notes I made, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like a month's worth of shows. It's it's July. There's not supposed to – well, it's August now. There's not supposed to be any news. It hasn't been like that. It hasn't been like that all this summer. This is, It's great, though, really. Yeah. It really is. Uh, I do. I remember when it used to be when there was nothing going on in August. Uh yeah, WWDC would happen, and then it would just sort of peter out. And there'd be no news. But now we have what? We have lawsuits. We have Chinese intervention. We have uh, hackers being arrested on their way out of DefCon. We got all kinds of black hat, rather. Uh, uh, no, I thought all or kinds was of it stuff there? happening. Uh, anyway, uh, was it DefCon? Or was it? I forget. But they used to be there, DefCon. Apple used to have little quiet Mac events in August. Remember those? Like, like I think like. Uh, what are they, were they introducing new Mac models? Not uh, yeah, like or maybe like when they first came out with the iWork suite, they did it like in August. It was like you know be August. Like, uh, I never went down for those. I would go down for hardware, but not software in the old in the olden days. Um, but I remember going down like Aprils and Septembers typically. Yeah. Those events, but, those, that was before my time of attending events. That was when I mm-hmm. did everything remotely from Philadelphia. Uh-huh. Uh, but I don't even know if I would go out. I guess I would go out for it, but they don't really do small events anymore. Not like that. Yeah, there's nothing small because everything they do is a ten billion dollar or more line of business, or right. or starts you know about starts at that and then goes up. All right. Yeah. Uh, so where do you want to start? Let's. What's the? What do you think is the the one? Jeez. Oh, well, I the, I'm interested. The Chinese market is interesting yeah. to me. Should we start with the VPN? Because we that's that's got, we have things to say about that. Although it's you know it's also a little more. It's a funny situation because uh, so Apple removed the um, they removed some. I thought they there was this originally it sounded like. Because uh, you can't really check the Chinese app store right. from another country very easily. It sounded like a lot of uh, a lot of VPN apps, virtual private network apps, that are um, were being removed. And so there's this this thing that I, I, the background is too that so China has various kinds of uh, interception and uh, blocking tools to keep people who are uh, either uh, residents or citizens of their country from uh, reaching outside the country for. Uh, data and so some things are approved and some are not. But they've really been cracking down on a lot of ability to get outside of uh, China or get out at least at some kind of speed that makes it functional right. to do things. And Google famously left China in 2010 and set up shop in Hong Kong, even though that's uh, you know part of China, but it's very confusing little um, relationship how that works. That's uh, you know, an ongoing change. Uh, and Apple stayed, you know, Apple stayed in. It's gotten bigger and bigger. Um, but so the great firewall of China is an effort by the Chinese government to, um, so like standard VPNs, my understanding is you can't just use, uh, you can't just sign up for like a regular VPN service, um, you know, forget the app part and just use it inside China. So the standard protocols are now being broadly blocked. So you have to use a service that does some other kind of tunneling or uses uh, SSL based or some other system that's not just using the old fashioned stuff like uh, IPsec and over LT, L2TP or and all that. Uh, so that's my understanding. So all these services have thrived because they use different ways um, and a lot of them are sold worldwide. So it's not just they're being sold China. Some are China specific and some are worldwide. And so three of them at least have been removed from the app store by Apple because uh, the Chinese government says they lack the appropriate uh, license that allows them to operate in China. And um, Apple said hundreds of other VPN apps remain uh, available, including those, you know, by companies that are outside China. So um, 
the VPN companies themselves are kind of, you know, peeved. They made a lot of noise about it, but it's, um, it's a, you know, so it gets the whole question of like, what is compliance to local law? So we don't think that this law requiring registration of services and compliance with whatever rules China has that might allow, um, blocking and sniffing and other things, this doesn't comport with our feelings. And it might, you know, not, I'd argue it's probably, um, in violation of the universal, Declaration of Human Rights in terms of um, freedom of expression and, and freedom from well, and let's from, just uh, stop it right there things. and admit that yeah. whether whether this particular move is in violation yeah. of, of the Declaration of Human Rights, the the People's Republic of China has an awful lot the, as official policy has a lot of policies that are violations <laughs> yeah. of of human rights. So right, it, right, that, right, right. It's, fundamentally, it's this not is really a question. There. This is the thing that frustrates me about that. It is an interesting story. It is it is absolutely worth noting. It is worth making a stink about. Um, but the, the knee-jerk reaction from a ton of people, even after I paint, tried to painstakingly – and this is just feedback from people who read my site – but painstakingly tried to say, hey, you could be upset about this. You can even object to what Apple's done, but you can't just say Apple should have said no and kept the apps in the App Store because right, right. It, it, it's like it, – I, I, I sort of didn't really use the analogy that great, but I said you pull that thread – like okay, it's just a little thread which is saying no, we're not removing any of these apps from the app store. Uh, you can't say Apple should pull that thread without acknowledging that an awful lot of stuff is going to happen after they pull that thread. It isn't something that they can do in isolation and not expect retribution. I mean, my guess is if is if Apple just said no, we're keeping these available in the app store, that the Great Firewall would start blocking the app store like entirely. Like, right, Apple would very likely have to exit the market. And, right. I mean, a- Apple, you know, so there's things in China that are official policy, that are promulgated as laws and regulations, and there's things that are informal, and the government demands stuff happens behind the scenes, and it doesn't conform to any process, right? So this, uh, to some extent, you could say is like a promulgated law. Like, there's a regulation, right. you can look it up. Uh, they announced they're going to be doing this right. big enforcement action. Um, so you have to say, then Apple is saying, we are in opposition to um, a law or regulation in a country in which we're doing business, and we are resisting it without using the channels available to us. Because right. we don't know – the Chinese you know, legal system is very opaque. We don't know if they've gone through judicial processes, right. if they've been working through government agencies. I assume they have. I mean, Apple is no – there's no reason for Apple to court – to go like, yeah, yeah, let's, we'll just remove whatever they say. So I presume they've spent the six or seven months since um, China said they were going to step up this policy in January – uh, I presume they've been lobbying and just saying, "Look, you know what? What can we do? What can we do to our to to make this happen where we're not creating a a in public relations nightmare for everybody? It doesn't become a deal." And um, you know, China, I don't think per se cares. Um, the Chinese leadership cares about that part because it's not um, it's not it's not something that affects how they uh, govern the country to worry about the response to it, right? right? It, the the question is: Should Apple be in China or not? And that, and honestly, this, and, and if they are, if they're going to sell iPhones and Macs in China, this is the sort of thing that they have to do because it is compliant. It's, it's complying with mm-hmm. the law. Uh, I don't think, for example, that Apple is particularly happy about the uh, Amber, Amber Alert thing that your phone iphone does oh yeah when it goes off i don't think they like that sound i don't think uh, frankly i don't think it's a good law i think it's a you know i don't think it's uh, to my knowledge it's never once helped 
rescue a child. No, I think it. I think it has did it. once. Did it really? I think. I think there was. Well, versus the phone. The, some of the. I believe that some of the alerts uh, that have gone up on uh, like highway signs and through other means. I think that has actually helped track people down. But has I it? Has it helped to have everybody in a certain area have their cell phone make a terrible noise? Right. All at I mean, once? so everybody but, in the north. I got one the other day where it said like Mead, Washington, like just uh, yesterday, the day before. I'm like Mead is hundreds of miles from here, and it's I. I totally get the reasoning behind it. It's not regionalized enough. Right. right? That's the problem. Right. So, but does Apple have a choice in the matter? No. The law says in the United States, if you're going to sell a cell phone, it has to, you know, made after a certain date, it has to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I guess, I think there's a way to turn it off. I think I'm pretty sure I turned it off on my phone. Uh, Oh, yeah. You can, you can disable it. That's right. Right. But the, you know, but by, by law, though, it has to be on by default. Uh, Right. Uh, it, you know, and again, now not, this is not an issue of human rights. Uh, it's not an issue of free speech, but it's just the nature of being a multinational corporation that sells in a bunch of countries is you've got to be compliant with the law in every country you're in. I mean, it's a, you know, there's a reason why Apple's legal department is humongous. Uh, it's not because Apple has just allowed it to to grow into a giant bureaucracy just for the hell of it. It's it's a hell of a thing. Right. And China is a country where complying with the law is going to involve things that uh, deeply offend, and in my opinion, correctly so, the sensibilities of uh, people in Western civilized democracies or democracies yeah, I mean, anywhere, really. Yeah, and and then of course, and then there's this very easy um, uh, the whataboutism uh, response, which you can look up on Wikipedia. It's a great entry for whataboutism. Then you say, well, what about the U.S.? We have all this garbage we do here. We have you know warrantless wiretaps. We have extraordinary rendition. We have secret FISA courts. All this stuff. But you say, by and large, things come out. Like by and large, there is a process, and most of the I would say most of the friction we have about government. Uh, let's see, like like a continuous thing under any administration. I want to say like not most of the friction about government, but but one of the big issues about privacy is that so much uh, of what should be subject to due process and constitutional protections seems to have been exempted without any review of the constitutionality, without a good way to overturn that. So you have lots of organizations in the United States working on that. But we have a process. We have courts. We have SCOTUS. We have we have a thing that we agree as a mechanism. So even when we veer towards something that is anti-constitutional, there should be a way to veer back. And it may take sometimes years or decades for that to happen. Um, but we, we tend to hew towards um, upholding constitutional rights, which include upholding, you know, which broadly uphold human rights. And we'd argue maybe that – so that my whataboutism is like, well, okay, we're, we're criticizing China for this, right. but America has all these issues. You know, we have all these things we've done. We've got people in Guantanamo. We've got you know trillions of bytes of data being collected every uh, month by uh, people on black budgets who are contractors to the government sorting through you know blah, blah, all this stuff's going on. But I would say we are still fundamentally – we are a democracy with a rule of law, with a justice system that's a judiciary that's independent and has review, and we're wrestling with some of those fine points. So when Apple opposed uh, the FBI in the San Bernardino case, Apple had a process. It was not ordered to do something. People didn't come in with guns in the middle of the night and you know point them at Tim Cook and make him march out and find engineers. Uh, they went through a, a process. Most of it was public, and the FBI eventually bought <laughs> – tools from hackers to to break into the phone and found apparently nothing useful. Uh, so we'd argue, I guess, that in China, it's, you know, partly they have, uh, don't have the same orientation towards the primacy of human rights and individual expression that many other countries do, and that we believe is kind of the foundation of 
Um, you know, I, I believe I don't agree with China's approach to human rights and freedom of expression. Um, I'm not sure it's a valid. I, I, I can't even say I think the approach is a valid one um, in terms of how it crushes the human spirit, right? But I can also understand if I step back and say objectively, they have a different orientation to that, and they are a sovereign nation. They've established their sovereignty. And if Apple wants to work in that market, they have to work within the constraints of a system that is not uh, organized in a way to provide this kind of a judicial access and appeals process and transparency to what they do. Yeah. I totally agree. Uh, I think the thing that we do in, as the United States that's most objectionable on that front are those um, the secret orders. I think you mentioned it, right? The ones where the company, oh, the FISA court things, right? Is and that, that, and or, that or there's also legally you know, not there's more too legally not allowed to notify the person that it's been issued, which is bullshit. That's that's to me yeah. a violation. That is a different thing. Those aren't FISA. Right. That FISA court. It's a that's a different thing where the government right can issue a. a Right, and that's where you have the canary documents on the site, right? Where you can say Apple – I forget which site everybody has it, but you have a document that says the government hasn't asked us for this yet. And if that document were to disappear, that's legal uh, and it means the government has asked them for something, right? That's right. a great little mechanism uh, to get around that limitation of – because right, there's an argument is that is probably not constitutional if it were firmly tested. Do not, I don't believe uh, SCOTUS has taken up um, that particular issue. No, I don't think so. Um, so I really do. I, I just, I, it frustrates me that people don't re, really don't think this through. And, and I really do think, so it, 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 somebody, and then some people I've seen, some people are arguing that Apple should just pull out of China. They should not, uh, they just should not sell products in a, in a country with, with policies like this. And I think, I think there is a line that, and I don't even, I think there are lines that China could feasibly it might actually happen where China would make a demand that that would prompt Apple to actually pull out of China and sacrifice right, all the right. money. I think, for example, if China mandated that there has to be a back door to get into the like like a San Bernardino back door, some kind of golden yeah. key, so that a confiscated phone in the People's Republic of China that the government could decrypt it, and there, and any phone sold in the country must have you know such a mechanism. I don't believe Apple would make a separate. SKU for iPhones to comply with that. I really don't. I, I don't. I don't think so either. I think it's so. And I think uh, so. There's this issue of would China push Apple to a point where it knows that Apple would exit, and that might actually occur because China. I mean, um, I forget if you had Ben Thompson on to talk about this, or you were talking about it. The self. He he wrote that great thing of, uh, several months ago about um, the 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 key, and I've seen it repeated a number of times since. Uh, and I, I don't know if his insight was original but it's been so i'll claim it was um that that in china the app has primacy not the ecosystem right so you have um uh, wechat and alipay and other kinds of things that are app based and they work the same across um every platform that's available so you can buy a cheap linux phone that's not android even you can buy an android phone whatever an iphone and you're using the apps and the apps are the thing that are primacy so um this explains there's not as much, even though there was originally very clearly this brand awareness and brand desire for um, iPhones in China, it sounds like that's faded somewhat, and we can see that in sales and so forth, and that people have now kind of very rapidly switched over to um, just thinking about the efficacy of the individual apps. So Apple has less of a, I don't know, like when they were selling more devices and were a more critical part of 
that market, they might have had more leverage. I, I think it boils down to, you know, would China care if Apple left the market? Would it, would it harm China as a country? Probably not that much because they have all the alternatives they right. need. It wouldn't be harming their competitiveness or whatever. It does, of course, and you get into this whole, okay, well, you know, Apple not only does it make, uh, like, made $10 billion in the most recent quarter in revenue, uh, in China, which was down year over year, but uh, they have all this manufacturing operation that they contract Foxconn and everybody else, some billions and billions. Of the, I don't know what the scale is that's right. dedicated to Apple. What happens to that? If right. Apple refuses to obey, does suddenly all those production lines get shut down and they're incapable of making iPhones? I really don't know what um, what would happen there, but the Chinese government uh, is you know is supreme and centralized and it can do whatever it wants at some level. Right. It's... It, it, Apple's relation with China is unique, and and the only other country where they have a, a relationship as unique would be the United States, since their headquarters is here, and yeah. and most of their employees live here. Uh, and, and I would argue that Apple's relationship with the United States, though, it's almost not a relationship because it's it's like that's the, this is where the this is where the roots of the company are. You know, it's 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 like intertwined. Their American identity is is almost. You don't even think of them as having a quote relationship with the United States because they're here and that's where their headquarters is. But their relationship with China is inordinately complex, and China is not just the second biggest market. It, it you know, and and the people who want to be cynical about it and say that Apple is bending over, bend you know, kowtowing, kowtowing. How do you say the word? Kowtowing. Kowtowing. Just because of the money. Uh, and, and it would that would be true if, let's say, they did all of their manufacturing in uh, Japan or, I don't know, Taiwan's not a good example because it's sort of tied to China. But let's just say that they weren't – they didn't have any actual manufacturing and assembly footprint in mainland China. Mm-hmm. Um, that still would be a, a, a tremendous – just the, the just the size of the market makes it important, but because that's actually not true, they do they do have a massive manufacturing and assembly footprint in China, and and so many of their suppliers also are there. I mean, part of the whole success of Foxconn in China and the is the proximity. It's not just Apple and Foxconn; it's the proximity to the companies that drive the trucks in every day with pallets full of, you know one tiny little thing for the camera, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's the proximity to it that, that also that, that further tightens, you know, makes it would make it so hard for Apple to move manufacturing somewhere else. Um, And, and it's, you know, let's face it. So, so Apple's relationship with China on any of these matters is way more complicated than simply than it would be if they were simply selling products to the people of the country. Yeah, it's, I totally agree with all that. It's that right. you can't, I mean, and I, I thought Tim Cook expressed the frustration pretty frankly. I was sort of surprised in the uh, analyst call a few days ago yes. where um, it was, you know, he has to be very careful what he says, but it wasn't um, – uh, what do I want to say? It wasn't – it was a um, – it was very – it was balanced, but I thought it was also sort of frank about the fact that they want to engage with what's going on. And if they can't – you know, as we said, they can't just say – no, that's not going to, you know, that's not going to cut anything for them just to say no. Um, but uh, because they don't have the basis under the law or in process to do that. Uh, and, um, you know, I was saying, you know, Apple, I, I actually feel like Apple should take a stronger stance, even if it's not saying no. I feel like they should be um, making more effort 
And I think Tim's comments went more towards that because one of my concerns is that by agreeing to Chinese restrictions, regardless of how legal they are under Chinese law, even in self-consistent, um, it empowers more countries to ask for more. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. and U.K. in yep. particular are asking for it. Um, so with that in mind, I feel like there's a danger that this – this has been – and this is kind of this ongoing thing. The bigger power China gets, uh, the more it was seemingly going to have to liberalize because it was facing the reality of more citizens with more money, a higher standard of living, and a middle class demands more indifferent and it's more comfortable and thus it's not as malleable and there's more power that's distributed when money is distributed that way. So the Chinese government, I think – I mean – not to get, I'm not a China scholar, Chinese scholar. Uh, I don't know how long the current structure can stand. It seems very fragile to me, and there's all this money and pressure and what have you. But as it's grown as a power, as an economic and, and market and uh, world power, um, people are learning the wrong lessons from it. So democracies have adopted more restrictive policy. I mean, right. you see Russia, which has always had kind of totalitarian, centralized, whatever. Like, when has Russia actually been free? Right. Maybe sort of under Yeltsin, free, yeah. but I don't know. But and but but it's uh, it's frustrating to see that the wrong lessons are being learned. They're being imported into democracies. That democracies learn how they can repress their own citizens better because they're seeing it demonstrated with no right. repercussion in countries that are not democratic. Uh, I think that – so somebody on Twitter, and it seems like he deleted the tweet. I don't know if he's somebody who deletes his uh, – at you know, it was like a conversation, a public oh, conversation yeah. we had. But I'm not going to – I still have it I still have it here to read, but I, I won't say his name, but just because I'm worried that he deleted it for a reason. But anyway, uh, it was somebody who, who objected to – accused me of defending Apple uh, just blindly – in the face, uh, you know, oh, yeah. simply as, as, and I said, well, seriously, what would you have them do differently? Do you really, you know, do you really want them to pull out of China? And, and let's face it, when we talk about this, pulling out of China is not just a decision to forego about 25% of their current revenue. Uh, it, it, it quite possibly would, it, it could, it, I mean, cost Tim Cook his job. I mean, because it's quite possible that a majority of Apple's shareholders, uh, would look at this and say this is not worth pulling out of 25% of our revenue uh, for the foreseeable future and jeopardizing yeah, exactly. our relationship so, with this I mean, country. Apple makes a ton, actually makes it makes a ton of profit but right. you know let, so it doesn't it's not making all its profit in China but you're voluntarily giving up all right. that revenue and all that profit uh, right? and you know so this person was was reasonable though it was a good it was a very it was a, a an adult Argument, you know, argument gets a bad rap as a word because everybody we've become so overly sensitive that we think an argument yeah. is a fight. But no, it's a, a, a logical argument. But his thing was that Tim Cook should personally state his opposition on Twitter as he has to many other political issues in the U.S. You know, like uh, he has, for example, Tim Cook has publicly come out in opposition to the Trump administration's immigration policies. Plural. Right. Um, uh, I don't think – that's a reasonable opinion to say that Tim Cook should do that. Uh, that wouldn't cost Tim Cook his job. He could do that. I'll bet he's thought about it. I wouldn't be surprised if he does at some point. But you also – and again, I'm not a Chinese expert in any way. Neither are you. I don't – but I do know enough about China that uh, it, politically you must be extraordinarily delicate. It is. It is, well, it, it is a culture – and and a, a government that that 
on both sides, both in what they say and in what they expect to hear. Uh, it, 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 they, they value subtlety. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. I talked to a Chinese expert, uh, this fellow whose name is uh, uh, Roger Kremers, who's um, uh, Dutch. He's an expert in Chinese law and governance and has studied this kind of thing. And I said, what, you know, what could Apple do? And he has some, uh, you know, what response could they have other than what they did? And he said, you know, this is China. You know, we talked about this earlier here, but he said, this is Chinese law. And um, they could become part. Uh, there's a board, uh, the TC260 is the committee that oversees this. Microsoft and Cisco are members of this board. Apple is not. They could. Um, they. Uh, he thinks that actually. Um, I think his stance is very interesting for someone who is from a Western democracy. Uh, like I said, he believes he's uh, from the Netherlands. He's taught and um, researched in the Netherlands and in, in uh, England and Oxford. Um, and he thinks that actually this sort of unfettered ability of expression on the internet may actually not be in the best interest of citizens, not just a governmental thing, which is an interesting stance. Um, you know, the reason we limit rights by, is what he says, the reason we limit rights by law is that their unfettered exercise might cause undue harm, limiting the liberty of others. It's long overdue this notion is introduced into the online sphere. Acts that are unlawful in real law should not be condoned just because one happens to commit them in cyberspace. And after having seen, so, that's distinct from free speech, right? People would read that. And originally I thought, well, that seems awfully harsh. And then I thought, aren't I one of the people who would like to see consequences happen when people commit, um, you know, basically crimes in Twitter uh, or or have some uh, consequential mechanism for things that are not simply about the ability to state an opinion and, and exercise free speech, but have a real world consonant, consequence like doxing things that are in fact illegal under some state and federal laws. Yeah. Um, but he says this, which is I think interesting. He says, the Chinese starting point is that historical, historical political mission needs to be fulfilled, which requires the mobilization of the entire society and therefore the imposition of discipline. This requires the state not to be limited and controlled in its power, but to have the ability to quickly and decisively intervene to clear roadblocks. That is anathema to the U.S. and to most democracies. But I, you know, it's good to get insight from someone who studied this so deeply. Who says this is, you know, their guiding philosophy is that that is the most important factor. And we have in our country, we want to be able to carry our, our you know, our guns and our liquor and uh, and drive 100 miles an hour all at and the not same have time. Everybody pull us over all at the same time. <laughs> we want the drive-through liquor store and uh, whatever. Um, and <laughs> the gun, with a gun on a gun on the passenger seat. Right. Right, you got broken glass in the back seat with your child sitting in it, no seat belt, and uh, that's what you want. So, I mean, I'm care, I'm making a caricature, but it's true is that we favor individual expression, individual rights. We there's do. a primacy of it. It's encoded in the central tenet of our government, and there's various. I mean, look, we have a lot of disagreements about what those limits are, but what uh, Rogier's talking about is really that is like some political parts of the political spectrum want to impose more rules in some ways on people's bodies or property and others want less. And it surprises me sometimes which end of the political spectrum wants government to impose rules on others in those fashions. With China, it's just a much more monolithic, the society becomes paramount and, uh, uh, this ability for us to control things and mobilize all the forces at once and move us forward in a single central direction is the most important thing. I, I really do think, and and I have yet to be proven wrong, and I know that there are some people who simply say Apple is a for-profit corporation and because they're so insanely profitable, literally the most profitable country in the world for the last few <laughs> years. I mean, it, that that won't last. That's true, no. That, yeah, that, that's you know, you know that there's zero doubt in my mind that that won't last because it never lasts. That's the sort of thing. But they will, you know, should remain very profitable for a very long time. Um, 
and that inherently any for-profit corporation is full of shit and nothing they say can be believed and they're usually right, usually right. you should default to assuming that they're lying in anything they say. Okay, <laughs> but in my experience as a very close watcher of this particular company and somebody who has a personal relationship with their their PR department, uh, I've never been lied to by anybody at Apple. Not off the record. Uh, I, I've never. I've n- not once have I been told something that turned out not to be true. Uh, they I, often give no answer. They often refuse to answer. Every once in a while, they give a uh, circuitous answer, but not one that is like, you know, like a Bill Clinton style. Uh, depends what the meaning of the word is, is or something like that. Uh, and I say this as a huge Bill Clinton fan. Uh, I, I'm just saying, you know, I found them to be, I think that they are a tremendously honest company. And again, they don't necessarily say they'll, they'll give a lot of non-answers. Uh, and I think Tim Cook's public statements, uh, if anything, if there was anybody in the country who's in the company who said things that weren't true, it was Steve Jobs. Uh, it would, and, yes. and that he wasn't really a liar, but that he would, you know, it, it the reality dis- distortion thing. So I would say in the post-Jobs era, the company is, has been – one difference between the Steve Jobs era and the post-Steve era is that the company has become completely honest, in my opinion. Uh, and I think Cook's remarks on the call were honestly what he meant. And I think you're right that they were very carefully considered – uh, so that he he could state his opposition in terms that were politically digestible to the Chinese ears, um, but I think his overall argument of we think it's better to be engaged than not engaged was true, and that's also what he had said about his involvement with the Trump administration. That it's better yeah. to be involved, and if I can get his ear and make my case for why he's wrong on these things. You know, it, I have a better chance of we have a better chance of affecting it by being engaged than not engaged. Do I yeah, think I he think enjoys is, putting a suit on and sitting there next to uh, Trump? <laughs> and he's always conspicuously right next to Trump because he's you yeah, know yeah. he's the CEO, the richest one, right? He's the yeah. you know maybe not the person personally not the richest, but he certainly is the no, one but, with the company that's the richest. Uh, do I think he enjoys? Well, I it? I thought about no. that. Right? Do I think so he, they probably rank it by? By company size, right? If you're half trillion dollars, you're over there. If you're three quarters of trillion dollars, you're there. I don't think the like, other administrations would do that. I think Trump, though, no. will, certainly would. You know. Uh, no, I agree. I mean, I think that it's a direct relationship too. Is is you know there there was an argument is that Apple, especially with its progressive policies, with a gay CEO, um, with its history and interest in uh, immigration, with its employees all over the world, including in affected countries that were affected by the travel ban. Uh, that he that they should completely you know create a kind of cold war situation with the Trump administration and just uh, support and battle elsewhere and i you know as much as i would prefer trump to be frozen out on the other hand it doesn't do any good for the us economy it doesn't do any good for apple for its employees its shareholders um you know apple's customers uh, it just it makes things worse as unpleasant as it might be to see what feels like um 
you know, co-opt, being co-opted uh, or being used. Like Trump's comment, you know, oh, there'll be three big, beautiful plants. This makes things up, as we know. Three big, beautiful plants. <laughs> Turns out that was total bullshit. I thought it was. Bullshit. Like the fox, <laughs> the fox, the, can we talk about, can we, I want to segue slightly, if that's all right. right. Let's is, hold this. Let's hold this thought. Let's, okay. Remember that we're going to come back to this. I just wanted to I'm say this. I'm going to pause and I want to say this, yeah. I want to say this about the China thing, is that to me, the thing that I think that the zealots who want Apple to stand up and shout a no, no, no about this, that they are overlooking is the welfare of the people of China. Isn't that the most important thing? Like, it's not the abstract notion of are you, you know, are you hindering free speech? Second, that that the notion of why free speech is important is fundamentally about are the people, it's the welfare and the freedoms of the people that matter. Right. And are the people of China better off or worse off if Apple completely pulls out of China? I would say they're worse off. It's better. I think that's the issue. It's so, they're so big. It'd be one thing if we were a smaller company. They're so big and they're so intertwined with the Chinese company. They they have sales. They have customers. They have employees. They have stores. They have manufacturing partners. The uh, regardless of what people think about Chinese outsourcing manufacture, the phone iPhones would not be made if it were not for China. China, China they would not be affordable. China is cracking down on end to end encrypted. Uh, uh, messaging systems they just stopped right. they 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 pulled the plug well not pulled the plug but they set up the fi- the great firewall to block whatsapp like 2 weeks right. ago uh, but iMessage and FaceTime, FaceTime are still working right yeah. and iMessage and FaceTime and i know that there are cynics out there who think oh, china apple probably gave china the you know the back door or something like that it, it, they they really are engineered i i can't prove this i'm not an encryption expert i don't have the source code but everything i know about them is that they were they were drawn from the ground up so that there could not be a, a man in the middle backdoor just for China or there, something like that. They really there are. Is a, there is a, there's a way to do it, but it would require changes that uh, I think if we discovered that Tim Cook had authorized or anyone in the company had authorized those kind of changes and they'd been rolled out, uh, it's possibly he'd be committing a crime under right. U.S. law. Right. So it's it, right. You wouldn't. I don't. I don't think he could do it. It would be. It could be fraud. I mean, their marketing materials. Everything they say says they don't do it. So they would be committing certain kinds of consumer the, and criminal fraud potentially right. if they change right. that. The hit to their credibility would be worth worth more money oh financially than than the Chinese market. It would absolutely right. devastate the company. It would crater the company. And and yeah. and do I think is it possible that they might start blocking iMessage? And is that the line where they would pull out of China? No, probably not. I'm just saying. I I I, right. I, I cited. IMessage and FaceTime as end-to-end encrypted things that that completely work in China, not as that's the only reason why Apple should stay in China, but just one example of why I think. Mm-hmm. And and that the main yeah. thing is to think about you know is it good or better or worse for the Chinese people. Uh, anyway, that was my that was my thing. We, what do you want to talk about? You want to you had a Foxconn idea. Oh. Well, I just want to – this is a little bit of a segue, but it's kind of very similar. So, you know, Foxconn – so Trump had that big announcement with uh, Scott Walker in Wisconsin that, right. hey, you have brokered this deal and Foxconn's coming, even though the deal has been in progress since 2014. Right. And Foxconn's been talking about it. Foxconn is enabling the presidency by allowing these kinds of messages to be said and, um, you know, so that's that's a deal. But so here's the thing that cracks me up is this is the kind of good deal we're getting is that, of course, um, states, unfortunately uh, – 
work uh, – they're actually all competing against each other to lure businesses. And it winds up uh, – Boeing got billions of dollars from my state, Washington State, and then immediately, almost immediately started laying people off and restructuring its operations. And there's a lot of um, anger here about Boeing because of that because they got, I think, the largest single tax incentive plan. And it was not structured to only be in effect if uh, – based on the employment issues. So, you you know, they're able to locate new production lines elsewhere. Uh, so, so Wisconsin – is very happy to offer $3 billion in state tax breaks to, um, which winds up being $230,000 per worker, assuming the factory employs 13,000 jobs. So this is a 15 year deal. And over 15 years, 13,000 jobs probably won't generate tax revenue that even approaches that much. I mean, there's the issue about, um, the tax, there'll be revenue booked from the plant that they'll get taxed from. There's other things, although because of this, we don't know what, what the final thing would be, but I'm just like, this is the kind of big, beautiful deal that's being made is, um, is just giving all this money away. The state is, state's, uh, giving away so much that it's going to wind up maybe never making it, you know, more money. It's great. I, I really, while we're on it, I just have to say that this thing where Trump, Trump was, it was in an interview with the Washington Post. I forget who it was with. But, oh, uh, was that the New York? No, with the, which which one is this? I don't the, know. The uh, one where he said that I, you know, I talked to Tim. Tim Cook called me up. He said, uh, uh, "Don, Don, we're going to build three big, beautiful plants uh, right here in the U.S." Uh, you know, yeah, Wall Street Journal. That Wall was Street it. Journal. Was uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, that interview where they didn't release the transcript originally, and then it got released later. It, it got leaked, and it turned out he said all kinds of crazy things. Uh, right. I, this this part was reported. Apple on. did not respond. Uh, I wasn't <laughs> sure if that was had if something to do with you know that they were only a week away from the earnings call or whatever, but it was obviously asked on the earnings call, uh, and Tim Cook gave a, another very politically. That was a very good answer. Well I considered it, but the, the translation yeah, well, is: <laughs> no, we have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> right? We have no plan. Well, I think the Foxconn, like it's just right, he doesn't. Nobody. I guess that's the kernel. Puts I, it in a bullet point. I guess that yeah. you know because he did he he did make political hay out of this Foxconn plant in in not Minnesota it's uh, Wisconsin uh, yeah speaking of Ben yeah. Ben Thompson Wisconsin uh, yeah um, and I guess somehow that rattled around in that big emptied skull of his and somehow <laughs> Foxconn makes Apple stuff and so a Foxconn plant for flat panel TVs in. Wisconsin yeah. turned into three huge factories for iPhones. <laughs> it's great. It literally is the case that Apple hasn't even what the, the flat panels that they're making at this Foxconn plant aren't even part of anything that Apple would use. So they're not even there's no. you know it, it could obviously change and it, you know perhaps uh, you know they could start making different types of flat panels there. And Apple obviously makes an awful lot of devices that use displays. So in theory, it's possible that that displays made in that facility might end up in Apple products someday, but it's certainly not an Apple plant in any way, shape or form. No, but I, you know, uh, the thing I was more excited about is that cook said they're going to invest all this money in us manufacture, yes. which is great. I think the big story. So here's the big story. I think of the next 10 years is, um, so, you know, a lot of the thing in China that makes it possible to manufacture goods there very affordably is not just the labor costs, which have been going up steadily. Labor is a tiny, tiny percentage of, um, at one point, I think it was 1% of the retail price of the iPhone was actual labor to assemble it. And a lot of the times you have chips coming from all over the world. You've got components coming from a bunch of places, but the main stuff is all being made and integrated in China. And it's the locked in value of having all of these uh, different industries that work together, making components all in these, you know, sometimes one city or in one area uh, that form these close relationships. That's the lock-in advantage they have, but labor is becoming less and less of so, especially as robotic assembly is going to become, you know, even more 
so than today. But so what I'm interested about is this the trend of the next 10 years is how much stuff gets made domestically, whether it's domestically in the U.S. or China for Chinese products for Chinese people, which is a big push China has as well, is is trying to make high-tech products and other things that are made in other countries, which still exists in large quantities. Uh, remember, you, the U.S. is still the number one, or maybe we're now the number two manufacturing economy in the world, right. despite the fact that we've decreased employment uh, in that industry because we're so efficient. So there's this big trend. Stuff's going to come back here because everything's gotten more – it gets more expensive to move things around. Right. Uh, it gets more expensive to uh, – the like I was just reading a great article the other day about companies that are switching to software development in like – you know co- companies are hiring in Indiana in smaller states and in, in mid-sized cities, not rural yet or small towns, but they're hiring in these places where they have plenty of qualified people or people willing to be trained. They pay them a great salary for the area, but it's a fraction of the salary – in you know Silicon Valley or New York or C- Seattle, um, it, they they're in the same time zones or within one time zone that companies are dealing with. They're native English speakers, and as much as I want to, I mean, I am not making any bias against people who learn English as a second or third or fourth language because many people communicate perfectly well in those. But when you add all the things up, it's it's like they're finding and, and wages in India have now gone up as well as China. So uh, this article noted that I think uh, wages are now maybe maybe cost half as much on an hourly basis for a programmer in India. But they're all the things added up make it harder to turn stuff as fast. It makes it puts in enough friction that these companies are now delighted to have people they can call and work with in real time who are understand who are like in the culture uh, and in the like regulatory environment and it's all kind of in the same place. So I think that is exciting to see Apple invest into uh, more of a U.S. manufacturing economy because stuff's gonna stuff is coming back and more of it will as the cost and quality of life improves in developing countries. That's well said. All right, I'm going to take a break here and thank our first sponsor, uh, longtime sponsor of the show, but they're back and they have a new product. So don't just stay tuned, even if you've heard of it. It's Eero. Eero makes uh, Wi Fi mesh network equipment for your home. Uh, they have a new second generation product just came out. I really think it, it might have been even last month. It's brand new. Uh, second generation base station. Looks exactly like the first one, almost. You actually have to turn it upside down and look at the model number to really tell the difference. And they sort of did a little slightly different treatment of the, the Eero logo on the thing, but it's the same size, same shape. Uh, and it can integrate, right? If you already have Eero, you can buy the new stuff. You can buy the new base stations and they, they hook right into the network. Um, but the new one, they've added a new thing. It's called the Eero Beacon, and it's about half the size. The little Eros are really, really small, the base stations. Um, but now they have a beacon. And in the original setup, the first-gen Eero setup, all of the stations were the same. You'd get these little Apple TV-style things. One of them is your main one. You hook it up to your, your Ethernet for your cable, your you know, wherever your Internet comes into the house. And then the other ones you put around the house um, – well, now they've got this thing, and they were the same. You just pick one to be the main one, hook it up to the internet, and you didn't have to do it. Well, now they have these ones called beacons, and the beacons are half the size. They're smaller. They don't even have a power cord. What you do is you just plug it right into the wall. It, it is, it's just a little device that plugs in the wall, uh, like a nightlight, except it actually has a nightlight feature, which is awesome. It's really, really clever. And you can, so, and if you don't want that, you can turn it off, but it's, you know, and it's smart and it knows it has ambient light sensor. So it only comes on, uh, when you want it to, but this, uh, second generation thing with the beacon adds a third five gigahertz radio. And so the second generation Eero is now tri-band and it makes it twice as fast as its predecessor. And I had the first gen set up in my house and it's the fastest Wi-Fi I've ever had in the house. And it's, we have a four, 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 
four story house uh gets really good internet up in the the fourth floor uh, which never would have with a base station that's on the first floor so it's that never could have happened with with like a traditional try to blanket your house from one base station wi-fi system just wouldn't work um if you don't know Euro, the basic idea is that they set up a mesh network where you, you it's like a, a this type of network that like a big office would have at great expense with a professional setup. And instead, you do it. You don't have to be an expert at all. It, you just use the your excellent, excellent Eero app right on your phone. And it tells you, walks you right through how to set it up. It gives you advice on where to position them related to stairs and stuff like that. The beacon makes it even easier to... Uh, just blanket your whole house with really, really strong Wi-Fi signal. Uh, it's a great product. I really, really love the company. And the second generation one is just better in every way. It's literally faster. The beacons really, really make it better. Uh, and last but not least, Eero has incredible customer support. And it's something that the company has really invested a lot in. They wanted to emphasize that I mentioned it here on the ad read. Um, They'll get you, hook you up. You call them up, and they'll put you in touch with a Wi-Fi expert within 30 seconds. I, I didn't need it. I don't think you would either. But just in case you have a weird thing or you run into something, you can get somebody on the phone in 30 seconds, uh, and they know what they're talking about. Uh, really, really, this is just a great product. So go there, figure it out, and and you know you go to the eero.com and and you know buy buy enough equipment based on the size of your apartment or home or whatever you're trying to set it up and remember this code the talk show the talk show and you use that code when you buy your Eero kit and you will get free overnight shipping so literally you could just pause this podcast right now and go order up your Eero if you were thinking if you've been thinking for a while about getting a new Wi-Fi setup uh, and you've just been putting it off well now's the time to do it because the Eero version 2 is out so go get it Pause the podcast, come back when you're done, and it'll show up at your house tomorrow for free. So my thanks to Eero. Great product. Uh, back to the show. I, I don't want to, you know, provide any um, what's the rest, endorsement of products I haven't used, but I have not used Eero yet. But, oh, my God, is everybody talking about it. So I've got to try this. As a longtime Wi-Fi guy, I have a ridiculously working network now with, like, TP-Link and Apple routers and crud and lots of wires so you uh, to, is my future for testing for those who don't remember glenn used to write a, a wi-fi <laughs> blog right every day there was stories. the yes. early days of wi-fi there was so much news that you actually could and did legitimately have a, a daily updated wi-fi blog I've been tempted to reboot it. I, I shut it down in 2011. The archives still get a lot of traffic, which is hilarious. One, one of the most popular articles in that story is a link, not an article, but a link to David Pogue's review in like 2007 of some Wi-Fi connected speakers because mm. the internet's a weird place, man. Uh, but I've been tempted to reboot it just to write about mesh because there's so much. What I is, just wrote like an overview. What was the name oh, of the for blog? Macworld? No, was, what was the name of your the blog? Oh, oh, Wi-Fi Networking News. So it's Wi-Fi Netnews.com. Still there. Still there. The main major article is, hey, I shut this thing down. But I just wrote a mesh explainer for uh, uh, TechHive, a part of a uh, you know MacWorld uh, sister site, and um, part of it was uh, just kind of like you know, so what? Like, why do you want to? <laughs> like, what's the point of this? Is this and really, there's like seven or eight systems out there. Some are from yeah. startups, some are from third you know or existing companies, and um, the deal is people are just sick, sick to death of dead areas and configuring things, and. Uh, you know, I wrote for Harry McCracken, the first article I wrote for PC World, 
I want to say it was 10, 12 years ago when Harry was the editor-in-chief. They had gotten this thing back from the survey. They used to do customer surveys at PC World. It was great. They'd go out to read those surveys and get huge amounts of information. And they had found the return rate on Wi-Fi equipment was like 30% to retail. And um, I would not be surprised if for conventional Wi-Fi stuff, like just the base station router stuff that you get, not the mesh things, if the rate wasn't still 30%. Um, just based on people's frustration with setting it up, you know, I just can't say enough good things about the way that Eero works. I re- I know that ad reads officially over, but I don't care. It's a part of the show. It's, <laughs> I, I tried the thing. I, everybody's talking about it. You know, you never. You know how you get like it. it, it I had to do it with the stupid cable modem I got uh, from Comcast when I moved, where you you end up going to a web page and they're like, go to this web page and and you configure things there and yeah it always feels janky configuring something from a web app or web form and you type in ip numbers and you're seeing ip numbers and stuff like that setting up an euro is nothing like that and you don't they it's one of those things too where you you do it on your phone not on your your computer and it feels right that you're doing it on your phone it actually because the experience Mm -hmm. is so just tap this tap that you know okay this that doing it on the phone doesn't feel like you're trying to like if you're a lot of times when you do something on the phone instead of on a computer it feels like you're you're drawing getting water from a very very narrow straw and it's like oh my god if i was on my mac i could just drink it as fast as i want (laughs) that's how i feel Uh, but with the eero setup the doing it on the phone is actually ideal because it really is just a big fat tap this tap that type of process also, the, beer, the build quality on their their equipment is amazing, absolutely amazing. It feels like Apple quality. I really, I, they can't say that, I guess, but that's what I would say. It's like it, this is really Sonos. It's, it's a Sonos strategy, right? Is yeah. Sonos was ex Apple people, but it, yeah. Sonos made a thing yeah. that is as the people liked as much as they like Apple products, which is really hard to do. It had the build quality, the features. They right. charged a premium price because they did a premium thing. I'll so. try. I'll trash a company. I'll name it. I'll say Linksys. You ever <laughs> have Linksys equipment? And I've had. I've had it but just don't even talk about the experience of it but just the the type of plastic that they use they use that the cheapest shit plastic that you could ever do and if you squeeze the device it creaks uh, as a brand new device it creaks in a way that you know what i'm talking about like a cheap plastic gadget just eero stuff is so solid it is amazing uh what do they say here? There's something in their talking points about does it. Does it give off a pleasant scent also? While you're no, but it has no scent whatsoever. <laughs> and it doesn't have that cheap scent. You know what I mean? Uh, here, this is from their talking points. Our manufacturing process rejects any performance flaw or cosmetic defense larger than the tip of a needle. And I believe it. It, it They look like museum objects. Anyway. That's good, though. That's part of the thing. Yeah. It's wi- Wi-Fi. Still painful. Ugh. Or still, I'm sorry. Still painful enough people are inventing more solutions yep. to solve it. Like 15 years, 16 years yeah. into Wi-Fi being a widespread thing. Yeah. So speaking That's of that, it rolls right out of it rolls right out of the Eero topic. Uh, Eero read uh, is the XKCD comic I linked to this week. Where, oh my god, that was great. Where uh, oh, what's his name? Randall, whatever his name is. The comic is uh, Monroe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that. It, over time with phone, like starting in 2007, you know, because that's, you know, like the, the AD1 of the iPhone era, there was this sense of, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd be doing things, and if you're trying to do it on the cell network on your phone, <laughs> you'd say, ah, this isn't, this is flaking out, this, this won't load, or it's not fast enough, or whatever, I got to do this on Wi-Fi. And that at some point, a few, a handful of years ago, around 2011 or so, those, those, the reliability of the cellular network surpassed 
the reliability of Wi-Fi networks. And more often than the other way around, when you're doing something on Wi-Fi, you, you wind up turning off Wi-Fi and turning on cellular and uh, it, to get it to load. And I find personally, for me, that is absolutely true. And I will even say, not here at home with my Eero setup, and I really am saying that I mean this sincerely. Not I'm not saying this because they were the sponsor. Um, it, it, but Wi-Fi in general, like Wi-Fi at just at uh, like my mother-in-law's house or my parents' house or anywhere else where I might have Wi-Fi or like at a hotel or something like that. I don't. I never get the Wi-Fi, the hotel Wi-Fi anymore. I just do. I just use my phone unless it's like video. It's, yeah, it's a funny. I. I totally, uh, I was laughing my head off when you linked to this because I was just thought, oh my God, I'm thinking of the number of times when I'm, so I have, like I said, I have a, I have a hilarious router set up in my house, so it all works, so I haven't changed it out yet because I have good performance everywhere and I paid the money, and so at some point I will just swap it all out for mesh because this is ridiculous what I'm doing. I have wires running, I'm a Wi-Fi guy, I've got Ethernet running all over the house, yeah, ridiculous, it makes me mad. It's terrible. Uh, um, but so uh, but so I'm thinking the number of times I am out of my house somewhere and it has a Wi-Fi network and I have to, I'm like, oh God. And I go and I swipe up control center and I turn off Wi-Fi. How many times are you doing that? Yep. I, I mean, I we get by, my wife and I get by with a three gigabyte a month pooled uh, plan with AT&T. We are very low. We, we don't spend that much time away from Wi-Fi networks or the house or whatever. Uh, and we're starting to exceed it because the networks are so bad. And yeah. we're like, oh, we're going to have to spend another like $200 a year to upgrade to the next mark because we're burning through it because we need it elsewhere. But um, it's, it, it's it, true. It, judging by the reaction I got from people, I got a whole bunch of, yes, that's amazing. I never really thought of it. And I have to admit, until I saw that comic, I just I never really thought about it because I, <laughs> my, 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 uh, my first impression, and, and I and I think this is true in so many ways psychologically. And and it's, for example, just a, a, a one that everybody who listens to this show is familiar with. Apple, it took Apple 15 years after the, it should have been the conventional wisdom that this is a thriving company. Uh, I would say it was at least 15 years after the consensus of the business world is that this is a very successful company that has a bright future ahead to 15 years of Apple as a company that's on the verge of collapse because yeah. they were on the verge of collapse and, and in a, you know, in 1997 and they were on really shaky ground and people who formed their opinion of Apple as a business in that time, it stuck, it stuck long after it shouldn't have, because that was the, you know, that was their the first impression. And it was true at the time. Um, and I think that the fact that cell networks are flaky and, you know, can't be depended on. And Wi-Fi is definitely a better, more sturdy technology than cellular. Was absolutely the truth worldwide, everywhere. And the fact that that's different now, it, it, I never really reconsidered that. You know, even though it was subconsciously, well, I, without thinking about it, I was, you know, raising the the window shade and turning off the, you know, whatever you call the thing, the control center, and turning off Wi-Fi. No, I, I have this. I had the same reaction for a long time. I, I was a big fan of LTE when it started rolling out, and we got it here in Seattle 
reasonably early, uh, feels like. And, uh, you could, you know, the first time I was testing it, I was like, wow, I'm actually getting, you know, I forget what the first thing I tested was like 20 megabits per second or 10. It was something outrageous compared to 3G, uh, even HSDPA plus or whatever it was at the time. That was the big thing. It was like, all right, this is really great. And we're at the bottom of LTE. Like we're still in the U.S. <clears throat> we're still, um, it's not that other countries are that far ahead, but, but the, the, general LTE flavor that's being deployed or that's deployed everywhere is really still the bottom. Like we're going to just like with Wi-Fi where we started at like, you know, 11 megabits per second, but it was much lower. And then we went up to 54 and higher and higher. Now we have 802.11ac and there's different models. You can push, if you're lucky, you can push a gigabit per second or more across two different frequencies with your one base station now. Yeah. Right. And that's amazing yeah. um, when it works correctly. Euro but does that. LTE yeah, and LTE. Yeah. So and right, there's and there's a more advanced these wave two AC uh, units that are coming out that are going to be that are much better for throughput and range and everything else, yeah. because they do beam forming, so they focus energy in the right place. Right. But the uh, LTE still has there's so much headroom in LTE, and 5G is still a long way away. But like 4G LTE, we will have networks eventually that are hundreds of megabits per second that are just going to be generally available. And then you have to deal with what the bandwidth cost will be when yeah. you're when you're that kind of thing. Um, but the, here's the thing, John. This is I think the big thing is that uh, we uh, forget. Sometimes I have gigabit internet at my home, which I am delighted with, and I'm paying too much for it, like a hundred and well, I think I'm paying 156 bucks a month, and it includes a phone line. If I didn't get the phone line, it would cost forty dollars a month more because that's how bundling works. It cracks me up. <laughs> do you actually uh, get what speed? Do you actually get? I get like six hundred up and three hundred down. Wow, a lot that's of the time. fantastic. That is wow. so. It's great, and sometimes more. I'm coming but over. It's like you know, <laughs> I'm coming over. I'm coming awesome. to see well, I, a friend. Uh, you know, your friend of mine, Jeff Carlson, is going to come over. Uh, we're going to lunch someplace in a, a few weeks, and he's going to come over in the morning and just you know do his backblaze uh, backup. <laughs> he's got like seven hundred gigabytes to go, and he's like, "Can I plug in for a few hours?" I'm like, yeah, come on over. Use some of my uncapped bandwidth. But most people in the country, so I think the average um, bandwidth, I just found a number uh, from last year, but it's, it's like 50 megabit per second downstream is now the average. That's because there is more gigabit and 100 megabit per second internet being pushed out. But um, the, uh, let's see, where we're at now. I think it's the, uh, oh, here it is. 18 megabits per second is the uh, 10 fastest average speeds right now. So it's still, I think most people in the U.S. have... Uh, home broadband that's much slower than LTE in the I, same area yeah, they're at. Yeah. I at my new at, at, at my new house we have much I, I my internet was used to be a running joke about how bad the internet was at my old house. <laughs> it really was. And and it really did. I I know Merlin I still don't know if Merlin believes me, but I, we've had a couple of we had that one one of my favorite episodes of this show ever was with Merlin and we were talking about Comcast and the oh, stupid yeah. webpage they had with the the, 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 the giant orange cone that was if it was in proportion oh, to the yeah. van it's like a 20, <laughs> 20 foot and there's a there's a dog chasing a cat and, anyway but it really did my um, I, in my old house it it really did the internet service suffered tremendously when it rained <laughs> i swear to god oh my god so like if i was set to record the show and i knew and it was a rainy day i knew that we were in for trouble and it yeah, really, that's because there's old old rotted cables. The rain infiltrates and it um, disrupts the. Uh, uh, there are just holes in your uh, coax. I, for, place, I forget how long ago it was. There's an episode. Of the, <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not making this up. There was an episode of the talk show a couple hundred episodes ago. It might have even been back in the Dan Benjamin era. But it's, it was so many Skype drops because it was a rainy day that we literally oh edited the show and just put the just kept the Skype drops in. And instead of editing around them seamlessly, we we just played the Skype connections. <laughs> Over and over again. 
what do I get? I, I get. So here's what I get. I get. Uh, it depends, but I can get. I have some speed tests here where I'm getting uh, 220, 230, 238 down, and that's over Wi-Fi. Oh, that's that's Wi-Fi. Uh, but up is on the same those same tests. 12, 12, 12. Yeah, tw- it's super. Twelve consistent. megabits per second. Yeah, twelve megabits per second. What the? Yeah, see, this is what I love is so CenturyLink is one of the uh, old baby bells. Or no, it's, I'm sorry, it's not one of the old baby bells exactly. It was like uh, there were different smaller companies, like rural telephone companies, and it all kind of merged. They took over. It was US West and then Quest and CenturyLink was like Century something else and whatever. So they have like the worst portfolio. They have like all wired phone lines and they're kind of like a junk i mean i'm being too harsh because i don't know all the business model issues but you know like verizon spun off all of its uh wired phone lines like verizon doesn't own any pots anymore um and sprint i think got rid of there so like excuse me there's still millions and millions of wired phone lines uh, in the country even as they decline super rapidly it's like um you know how many modems are in use we're in that uh, dial-up modems oh my god wait a sidebar I'm starting to watch Futurama from the beginning with my oh, really? son, who is 10. And we got to an episode in season two, which is a joke about logging. Good news, everyone. I started, I tried to log on starting weeks ago. We finally got through to AOL. And, <laughs> you know, and it sees they're putting on virtual reality to go to this whole thing. And, and I'm like, oh my God, we paused. My wife and I are explaining for like 10 minutes to my 10 year old. Okay. So there was a phone and you dial. And he's like, I'm like, so there was a time. When the internet wasn't always on, it wasn't always available. He's like, really? He's just like <laughs> looking at me like an anthropologist, like, how did that work? Because we dialed up and it made noises and it was a thousand times slower than our current connection. Maybe more. <laughs> and, I, it might be more than a thousand times slower. What's, I'm what just, is 56K divided by gigabit? I got I got a math program here. Yeah. Um, but so that was hilarious. But so uh, uh, I'm, I interrupted myself. But, do the um, math. Can you do the math? <laughs> I have a, yeah, I use Solver, which lets you pipe in arbitrary S O U L V R. I love, I love you can that. Type in, I can type 56 kilobits per second divided by one gigabit per second, and it tells me, wait, I got the units wrong. It's uh, in percentage. I'm going to put a link in the wait, show notes to Solver. I'm doing it wrong. Wait, one, I got to do one gigabit per second divided by 56. I do the wrong way around. 56 kilobits per second. It, oops, if I can type right in real time, it is, oh, it's 20. So I have a, a connection that is. 2,200 times as fast now. I was correct I that it was more. You're right. More than 1,000. So mine Very at good. 200 megabits would be, what, uh, <clears throat> divide by five. So like 500 times faster, 600 times faster? Yeah, like 400, 446 times faster. <laughs> yeah. So and the scale of things, right? Like, you know, I mean, it's one thing when you say did I you, have. Did you, explain, uh, did you explain to your son that if somebody picked up one of the phones while you were connected that it would. <laughs> oh, yeah. My wife was like, so, Lynn was saying, so, you know, so understand, honey, that if you use the phone to connect to the internet, you couldn't use it for something else. And he's like, huh. He wasn't so- incredulous. He was sort of like, <laughs> and if somebody, just, if okay. somebody, if somebody picked up the phone, it would instantly disconnect <laughs> you. And if they quick hung up, it didn't put you back on. You had to start all over That's right. again. That's right. There was that call waiting feature that was added in some version of, uh, I don't know, V dot, V dot something. Um, so that was that was hilarious. Yeah, you but, could even, uh, you could even, you, you could even have your connection drop just because a call came in. <laughs> And you didn't even even if you oh, don't yeah, the call waiting thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know what. So so CenturyLink. So this is the thing. The reason we have gigabit internet in Seattle by uh, our phone company is that they are desperately trying to. They're, they're putting in fiber as fast as they can possibly hmm. string it up. 
in order to replace the income that they're losing much more rapidly. So what I'm hoping, I, I assume, and this is probably rude of me because I don't know, it's a company. I assume at one point, at some point, CenturyLink will be unable to sustain their business model and I will have to switch to Comcast, which now has uh, something comparable that's cheaper but has its limits. So I have uncapped internet. Um, when I switched over to Black, Backblaze, uh, gosh, a while ago now, I switched over and I had like, I don't know, 1.2 terabytes to upload. I think it uploaded in like a day or something, like a day and a half. It was ridiculous. I set it to 10 concurrent threads. It's like, you're uploading at 500 megabits per second. I'm like, right on. And I had my whole, you know, life back up there. So that's crazy. Man. Um, I know. And so I'm paying through the nose for it, but as a home worker and is what I need, I could have spent, uh, saved money and got a hundred I, I would, megabit I would, second sp- I would spend it if I could. I, we don't have the, as far as I know, what I have is the fastest internet that I could possibly get in Philadelphia because we're, it'll, it'll we're, keep changing though. Yeah. Home, home what, of a uh, former Adelphia Comcast headquarters. Right? We, well, right. no, they're still there. They have the big, they're building a new tower one block over. They've, they've, the two, yeah, so you got a two biggest skyscrapers in town. Welcome to so, cable. Town. Uh, Oh my god! But that's why we don't have fiber. There is no fiber in Philadelphia because Comcast. Doxus, uh, Doxus three. This requires them. They have to keep rejiggering channels because they give up certain things, but people they don't need as much. And eventually, you will be able to get it, but it'll be subject to the one terabyte, uh, uh, not cap, but I guess a non overage fee um, thing that they do. But it'll come. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I thought actually the rollout of much higher speed internet would take a lot longer than it has because I thought the incentives were in keeping it scarce and charging through the nose. But I think we're seeing just small enough competition. And I think the cellular pricing on some networks, especially with like T-Mobile with its unlimited thing, even though you can't tether, like the migration to mobile services away from desktop computers and conventional television watching, especially through tablets, I think is forcing the uh, the wireline, uh, you know, fiber cable uh, DSL firms. I think they've had to up what they do faster than they wanted to. I'm sitting here looking. I wanted to see what how much uh, internet I've been using, and I, I can't yeah. find the app on my phone. And I swear to you, oh, I'm yeah. telling you the truth. So you know how Comcast rebranded their their home services as Xfinity. Right, because the Comcast yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. name is so sullied that they have to call it something new, <laughs> something you can't spell. Right, right. Um, but their app that you use to like see your account and stuff, the icon for the app, the icon has some kind of little logo, and then it says on the icon Xfinity. Uh huh. But the name of the app, this is for the iPhone, so I can't rename the app. The name of the app is called My Account. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I I swear to God, that's, go to the app store and look look for it. I swear great. to God, that's great. Like they literally, they, they literally don't even know how you name apps. Can you? I mean, <laughs> that they put the name on the icon. So anyway, the whole my whole problem was that, that I couldn't. You can't just go to um, whatever that the 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 what's the search feature called uh, in. You know, when you pull down on the iPhone and you can search for your apps, whatever you call it. Oh, a spotlight it. thing spotlight. or whatever, spotlight. Yeah. yeah. So you can't search for Xfinity or Comcast. You have to search for Oh, because it's not named right. that. Oh. It's called My Account. <laughs> I, I, it's great spotlight work, too. Oh, my God. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, let me see here. How much, how much internet did I use here? I don't know. I can't find it in the app. I don't know. We use <laughs> See, we we use a shocking amount. I I thought it was a mistake. I really did. I thought that that was like, well, that can't we can't possibly use that much per month. But uh, I think having a teenager, over a terabyte, I think so. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it's pretty one. easy. If you if you stream video and you have backups, right. do you do internet based backups? Right, you got Backblaze yep. or something yep. running. And, I do. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I'm sure that I am uh, sending several hundred gigabytes a month with Backblaze because I take if you take photos and you use iCloud Photo Library and you do anything else, you're you're just. I mean. I'll go out, you know, my wife was like, why is my phone full? And I'm like, oh my God, you have like, you know, 15 gigabytes of images on there and she had a sync issue and whatever, but you don't feel like you're uh, creating that much. And it just, it adds up so fast because the, and I'm shooting raw sometimes and on my cameras because I like shooting raw and editing later. Um, so yeah, it's easy to add up. I think Jason Stell's added himself, but I think he easily crosses a terabyte a month too uh, with his service. So yeah. then you have to pay the overage fee. And yeah, it's uh, I don't know if I get. I don't know. I don't even look at my bill, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they're hitting me with overage fees or not. I just have auto pay on and just pay it. They're charging you for a modem you didn't rent 15 years ago, probably. No, still, so I finally. You know that. what? It was great. That was one of the good things about moving is that uh, we, oh, we finally got rid of it. Yeah, well, we like canceled the old account, and so any kind of thing in oh. the back of my head that was like a nagging, like, are, am canceled. I pay, am I paying for like some goofy, you know, like you said, like a modem 10 years ago or whatever? I like, I know that I'm not. <laughs> so like, I, I have a, a good, uh, whatever you want to call it, a. a Clean, uh, clean. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say conscience. Yeah, they charge. They charged me. They were when I had, I had business service for obscure reasons because I moved. And they want to charge me. They have a seventy five percent cancellation fee for your entire contract if you uh, move a business if you cancel business service within the term, which should be illegal and somehow is not because uh, it's so it's ridiculous. So I moved from a business location to my home and I kept the business service and they absorbed all the costs, which was nice. And eventually, uh, you know, I switched to what I have now. Um, they started they started charging five dollars a month for a modem because they didn't have. You couldn't get like an over-the-counter one that worked with their business flavor, which was fine. Then at some point, they upped the rate to like $13 a month, and the modems were like 50 bucks. So uh, I finally realized this and canceled it. Then they just kept keep charging me. And every month, I'd be like, you charge me again. They're like, oh, we should, yeah, we'll take that off. And then like at some point, I got somebody who's like, oh, this is ridiculous. I mean, I got someone actually at Comcast who thought it was ridiculous that I had to be working that hard to get it off. Like somebody must have been new. Right. And they like even think they gave me a credit even. Like they pulled it off and it never got charged again. And I got like $20 credit because it's such a hassle. Um, but, you know, that's their business model. And that person didn't know. They weren't trained yet. <laughs> I, I was can't. flashing back on the uh, – I Ryan Block call with Comcast. I can't uh, find my usage. I have I have no idea. <laughs> this is the perfect Comcast Xfinity experience. Oh, here it is. Data usage. Yeah, here we go. Data. Yeah, yeah. Data usage overview. Ninety-five gigabytes used this month, and that's that's, and you're, that's okay. That's August. We're three we're, days in as we record we're this. Two and a half days in. Right. So. Oh, uh, that's good. That's all right. That's what it's there for to use it. Right. I am getting. Stream, I am getting. Notes. So what they promised me is 200 megabits down and 10 megabits up. So the 12 yeah. megabits up that I'm that I'm seeing over Wi-Fi is actually more than they promised. But oh my god, it's, great. it's Cable Town. Wait till you get better someday. Uh, all right, let's take a break. I want to thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Fracture. Oh, do I love this company? You know Fracture. Fracture is the photo decor company that is out to rescue your favorite images from the digital ether. You shoot photos you pick the ones you like and then every couple months go to fracture take your favorites go through your 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 photo favorites and get a couple of them printed and they what they do is they print them directly on glass and they add a laser cut rigid backing so what they ship you you open the box and it's ready to display right out right out of the box they even include the wall anchor if you want to hang it on the wall and what you get is absolutely amazing because it's edge to edge there's no frame around it 
it's just an edge to edge piece of glass with uh with your photo on it print and it looks like it's printed directly on glass it's not like they take a a piece of paper where the where the photo is printed on and glue it to a piece of glass. I don't know how they do it. I don't know anybody else who does anything like it. And the effect is simply amazing. Uh, it, it, it's like the platonic ideal of how to hang a photograph because there's nothing else to distract from it. It's just the photo on a piece of glass. It's almost like the ideal of where like phones are going. Like as the rumors come of the bezels on the iPhone getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, there's no bezel on a, on a fracture print. It's literally nothing. It's just edge-to-edge photo. It is so great. Fantastic gift idea. It is a gift idea for family that you will never, ever, ever get anything but the highest compliments on. Um, and each fracture is handmade in Gainesville, Florida, from U.S. source material in their carbon-neutral factory. Uh, so for more information and 10% off your first order, go to FractureMe.com podcast. And then don't forget to mention the talk show in their one question survey, guess what the question is? Where did you hear about Fracture? <laughs> That's literally all they do. <laughs> uh, so it helps support the show when you remember that you came from here. Uh, so go check them out. Really, really, this is just another It's another sponsor that it's just a pleasure to do the read for because I'm such a big fan of, of their product. Uh, it, it really is a great company and a great product. Uh, all right, moving on. What else do we have on the agenda? So we knock China out. Uh, you want to do the Apple Park? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So, so talk about that. I don't know. Sometime in the interim between the, the last episode of the sh- show and this one, there was a really, really fascinating and b- well-written and beautifully photographed uh, profile of Johnny Ive and Apple's new campus, Apple Park, uh, in the Wall Street Journal's like weekend magazine. Uh, lots of interesting details. I guess I should put a link to the, the article in the show notes. Um, but the part that stuck out, in, at least in our community, were, were the pictures of the workspaces for, like, you know, the, the whatever you want to call them, the enlisted men, you know, the, the, the <laughs> rank and file Apple employees. Enlisted <laughs> men, um, yes. It, it's largely open floor plans, um, which is not the way Infinite Loop is set up. Infinite Loop, now Apple's existing campus, in, you know, whatever, they have more than a campus. It, it's funny because when I was out there uh, back in April for that little Mac roundtable that a, that a handful of press people got invited to, uh, we, we got to walk around and we went to the new cafeteria, which is, according to this article, I guess I kind of, I guess somebody said that to me when we were at lunch before we had the, the meeting. Um, but it was built as sort of a prototype of the cafeteria in Apple Park. There's a, a new mm-hmm. Cafe Max and it's huge and it's spacious and it is, it, it must be three stories tall and, and the fit and finish is just phenomenal in the way that everything lines up, like the floor tiles where they meet. If you look meet perfectly where the beams are that are supporting the weight. And then you look at the ceiling and there's tiles in the ceiling and they're not just beautiful, but where the seams are perfectly align either center with something else. It's there's, there's nothing that you could say, Oh, if I, you had thought of it, you'd have that centered between these two things. Everything like yeah. that is like that. It's so beautiful. But it, the walk from infinite loop, like where you park, like where the press usually parks. Um, yeah. To, to this cafeteria, it's a couple block walk, and you just realize as you walk it, 
Uh, oh, and the other thing I, I got to see a lot of too is because I stayed at a hotel across the street. I forget the name of it, but it's right there by the. I didn't instead of staying in San Francisco like I usually do. I just I was like oh, I'm just here for Cupertino, so I'll just stay there. Um, but the walk from my hotel to where where I had to go in the morning, I don't know, nice nice little ten minute walk, beautiful because it's you know sunny California. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you realize as you walk down. Uh, Bandley Boulevard. Every building is apples now. They they just bought everything. Uh, anything that's not like a restaurant is is an Apple office. And so they have a bunch of offices at the quote old campus that aren't really part of what you would think of as the old Apple campus. They're just off any office space anywhere down there they've bought. Um, but anyway, th- that is to say, I still think most of those offices though, even the ones that are just random real estate pickups that Apple's made in the last ten years. Yeah. Most Apple employees have their own office. <laughs> That's a very long way of me getting to Apple. Most people at Apple have their own <laughs> office. They always have, and and they always did. And those who are moving to the Apple campus too now won't. I'm shocked by it because it's not like it's not like Apple is run by a bunch of managers who are disconnected from what they do. Right? This is. Um, you know, I try not to say if Steve Jobs were alive, X, and I feel like this is one of those things I'm I'm baffled by because I again I don't think Apple is confused about internally about how people work best. I wonder about they have their that. own history. I wonder about that though because it seems like Jobs really was deeply you know they he had they had the spaceship to you know famously his last public appearance was before the Cupertino City Council had to pitch this thing and they had drawings of it and so I yeah. feel like. He might have, you know, he and Johnny were both on board with this. I guess, but it just, I mean, there's decades of really good research about productivity. I mean, people were throwing up studies left and right because it's not, it's like we all have our own anecdotal experience. And anybody who's a programmer or a writer, uh, I would say virtually, gosh, can I say like 100% of people would, that's probably not 100%, but I don't know anybody who's a programmer or writer. And I'm not disparaging people in other professions, but I know specifically where your job is to stare at words and type on a screen and maintain a state of flow with that. You're not on the phone all the time, where if you're on the phone, you also need privacy and whatever. But you're not on the phone all the time. You're not walking around. You're not constantly in meetings with other people. Your your job is a, as much of it as you can maintain is a relationship with that screen, right, right. <laughs> is what you're doing. I don't know anybody who wants to be in a place where people are walking around them. They want a place where they can uh, close a door and have as little visual disruption as possible as well as oral disruption. Uh, so I can't imagine talking to any 10 people in Apple who did those jobs and any 10 of them saying, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to be in a place where I have to wear headphones all the time and I have to almost wear blinders to keep you know from being disrupted by people walking by. And they're not doing it because they're cheaping out. There's, there's nothing about this. No. There's nothing about this project that is about being cheap. It is it is. Like like an Apple product and like any Johnny Ive obsession, it is about, you know, maybe not quite spare no expense, but it is, you know, uh, spare little expense at making it exactly what they want. Yeah. Uh, and looking know. at the photos, it's not like they're saving space per se. It looks like there's a lot of really kind of opened spaces for people to work where you could easily have, even if it was two people to an office, which is not uncommon or some other thing, at least some spaces that could be closed. Yeah, and I, um, you know, I think that I don't get it. I, I realize that there are a, a ton of people listening to us talk about this now who work in an open floor plan. I realize that it's yeah. that is certainly the modern way to do things. I know that a lot of startups are. It's almost assumed that that's how they're going to lay out the floor plans. Uh, 
I, I realize whether it's for cost cutting reasons or cultural reasons, because I think like startups think it fosters a, a you know, a, a collaboration or, or whatever. Uh, the difference is that Apple has has a lot already has a culture and a company culture, right? And it also is sort of self selecting. Where if you're if you are, uh, you know, if you're a software engineer and you know, you know, you and you like having an office, you, you know, that might be one of the reasons you went to work for Apple in the first place. Uh, I, I don't know. I find this very, very to me alarming. I honestly feel like it's and and I've been saying for years. Oh. Uh, and I always link, I have to give him credit. Like Guy English had a, a blog post. Oh man, it might've been, I don't know if it was right before or after Steve Jobs died, but it was right around that time. And just like, what are the biggest, what's the biggest thing that Apple should be worried about? And his take was the number one is talent retention. The single biggest oh, threat God, to the yes. single biggest threat and concern for Apple as a company is talent retention. And that, um, uh, you know, this was written. You know, he wrote it at a point where the iPhone was clearly as this. You know, that it was on that trajectory where you could see what a sensation. You know, it was going to be for years to come, um, and obviously was built by a fantastic army of employees, designers, hardware engineers, software engineers. Uh, but that having, you know, it, it, that's a conquered thing, and that those type, the type of people who can make, you know a world where everybody has a flip phone to, to create the iPhone, you know, those type of people are drawn to uh, new things. Let's do, let's tackle the next amazing new thing, not right. keep making the best, you know, the new 10th iPhone, not to, you know, and obviously there's a ton of interest. We might, if we have time, we might even get to talk about it. There's a ton of interest in the 10th iPhone. Uh, but it's, you know, you could lose those people if they're bored. You know, and and there's all sorts of other reasons that people might leave companies. Is that there's other thriving companies in the area that might offer them more money, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, you know, we could spend a whole show listing the reasons that the challenges that Apple has at main, you know, retaining the talent they have. Uh, where they work, your work environment is absolutely huge. It because it's every day, it's all day, every day. It's one of the biggest. Uh, to me, it's one of the biggest things possible. And think about the. Think about uh, the people who work at Apple. It's not just like any random, you know, if they have uh, 10,000 software engineers. So, well, it's not just any random 10,000 software engineers from the area. It's a self-selecting group of the sort of people who care about the things that, that Apple cares about, which is like, how nice is this? Is this, you know, uh, is this app nice to look at? Is the user interface logical? You know, it, it, Apple draws people who care about those things. And that's and it, and it's it's good for Apple that they do because then it reinforces, you know, when when the quality of your app or the design of your app draws engineers who are interested in designing nice apps, it makes the apps even better, right? Well, one of the things that you know people who care about stuff like that care about is they care about like their work environment. I mean, I'm sure I know that there are people. I've I got email from them when I wrote about this that there are people who are like, ah, I work in an open office and I don't I don't really like it. I'd love to have my own office, but I don't care. It's all right. I put headphones on and I don't care. Although, well, some of the open offices. I mean, the one advantage of cubicle farms is that you get you lose some of the visual clutter and some of the noise clutter too. So if you're literally in an open office, and I've seen, you know, I think Wired when they published that big thing of their the three million dollar office space they opened that looked like it was for a photo shoot uh, a few years ago. Um, that editor has since left. 
you know, and they were laying people off after that. It's great, great optics, great optics. Uh, anyway, that space had a lot of spaces that looked intolerable to me because um, you're just, you know, you're going to be cheek to jowl with other people. There's no, you're just sitting at like long tables and things. And I see some of that in some of the Apple photos too, where you're just going to be like among people. Yeah, it's not even um, a cubicle. It's it's like you're, you know. No. Cubicle would offend Johnny's sensibilities. I, I have a funny story that's like it's an anecdote that I would relate to this, which is um, my uh, uh, grandfather, one of my grandfather's first cousins, so my first cousin twice removed, was the first chair, or sorry, second chair oboist in the New York Philharmonic for many decades. And um, he came through uh, when I was growing up in Eugene, Oregon. The New York Philharmonic came through Eugene, Oregon. We had this beautiful new conf- uh, convention or uh, uh, concert hall, and uh, the local uh, whatever boosting group managed to book them. And so we got to hear him play and spend some time with him. And he said, I love your hall so much. You can hear everybody. You can hear, I can hear every other instrument. He said, you know, Avery Fisher Hall, which is the famous hall that was built for the Philharmonic, was originally called Philharmonic Hall. Uh, it's built in 19, I was looking this up, it's built in 1962. He said, we were on tour when the hall, they were interviewing the architect uh, who was building the hall. And he said, wood is an overrated material for concert halls. And we said, oh no. And we get back there and we play in the hall and it's terrible. It's so dead you can't hear people two uh, people away. And I, I found an article from 1974. I just searched on, on the official hall. 1974, this article in the New York Times is discussing what a disaster this space is. And they made some changes over the years, whatever. But he said, we know there's concrete in the floor. They swear there isn't. It took many years. I think it was only 10 years ago they were renovating the hall, maybe 15. They discovered there was concrete under the stage. They had been told there was no concrete, they pulled it out, and the hall's, you know, acoustics changed. And I was like, it's such a perfect example. Yeah. We're going to make a beautiful new conference hall. It's specifically designed, and you're telling the people who know what they need, uh, no, 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 no. You don't need to hear, you know, yeah. wood is an overrated material for acoustical properties. Like, ah! So there's, <sighs> it's, so it, I, I sort of feel, I feel like I'm hearing this, that story right now. I got tons of, uh, tons of feedback from Apple employees who either read my site oh, yeah. or maybe listen to the show. Yeah. And if any of you are out there and who have an opinion on this, I would love to hear from you. And you can uh, you can trust Very me. I, there's not one. I, I am proud to say that there's not one person who's ever told me uh, anything in in confidence uh, that that might you know harm their job if I publicize it or whatever. Uh, not one person has ever told me anything in confidence that they have come to regret telling me. Uh, I know how to keep my mouth shut. Uh, so anyway, if any of you at Apple have interesting stories to tell about this open office space, I'm all ears. Uh, I, I'm particularly interested if the, if Apple did because you know Apple famously doesn't do focus groups right. for its products. Did they have stakeholder meetings with programmers and right and marketing or whatever to ask them what they wanted from a space? I'm guessing not. Here's a story I heard that I cannot confirm because it was third hand. I so I cannot confirm it. It could be totally. Totally false, but it sounds true to me, and I think it would be easily checked because it's uh, if it's true, there there people will know about this. But I heard that when the floor plans were announced, that there was some I don't know either a meeting or however it got where Johnny Sarugi's team that he's in charge of Apple Silicon, uh, the A10, the A11. All, all of their custom silicon, obviously a very successful group at Apple <laughs> and a large and growing one with a lot on their shoulders. When he was shown the floor plans, he was more or less just, fuck that, fuck you, fuck this, this is <laughs> bullshit. Oh, my God. And they built his team their own building 
off to the side on the campus. So they're not even. Oh in, my god! Not only are they they're not going along with the open floor plans, but that Saruji's team is in their own building, and they might. I, I maybe internally they're saying it's for security or or that it's, you know, that they're they're just off. You know, they you know that there's a logical reason for it. But uh, it, it, the, my understanding is that the building was built because uh, Saruji was like, "Fuck this!" And my team isn't working like this. Don't I remember too that isn't the um the spaceship is already totally outstripped, right? Like they they built yes. it. They oh, already have more people. Yeah. yeah. So that's gonna be a fraction of the uh can, can I talk about Amazon for a second? This will sound like a, a segue or yeah. whatever, but it's really about this. Um I'm working on a story right now for Fast Company. I'm not giving away a secret by uh, it's not out yet, but um I, I'm looking into like it, it's not a secret because there's nothing proprietary about it. It's just um I'm living in Seattle. John, I don't know if you know if you've seen any of the coverage about what's happening to my city, is it make does it make yeah. the newspaper? Like, I just saw okay, it it's crazy. I know we were just it's talking about it privately, but I I did see it somewhere. I, I did outrageous. We have we have more cranes. We have almost twice as many cranes in our skyline right now in the city as Los Angeles, which has six times the area of Seattle. We have more uh, higher percentage of uh, open jobs in uh, software and related fields than Silicon Valley. We have. Uh, you know, we have the richest or second richest, maybe actually, it's probably the first and second richest people in the world in our area. Right. We have that, um, that would be uh, Jeff Bezos uh, and Bill Gates in that order. Yeah, they're fi- they're competing, right? They're well, except I think it shifted back like they lost a buck. And a- it ebbs and flows by ebbs and flows by Microsoft right. and Amazon stock price. Um, we have so much construction going on. So we had this uh, minimum wage debate, and um, we got a, a socialist on the city council, and she is a firebrand, and she reignited this thing in our liberal progressive town, which is very proud of it self for being liberal progressive and uh but hey you know wages they're like no 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 we don't want to rock the boat no honor bucker she comes in she makes us her thing and then everybody takes it up because they don't want to be left behind we now have we are on track uh we have a 15 dollar an hour minimum wage if you're a large employer 500 or more employees and you don't pay towards medical benefits and if you're a small employer and do it's 11 we're on track we have a a staggered introduction so uh, it's inflation based, so it's going to keep going up. In a few years, it's going to be like eighteen dollars an hour. It's going to keep going up from there. Um, so, and everyone predicted doom and despair. All the restaurants would close. Whatever. We have more restaurants now, more openings. All the restaurants, the restaurateurs who threatened to leave have opened more off. You know, it's hilarious. We have a shortage of short order cooks. We have we're becoming aspen in terms of people being able to live in the city affordably and work in the city, even though the wages have gone up. Um, you know, the $15 an hour is a starting point for these larger companies. And you can be a, like a bottle washer and you can get a, a rate of 16, 17, $18 an hour. So we're in the middle of this weird, crazy, overwhelming prosperity. Our housing prices went up by more in the last period of time, like, like 18% versus like 5% nationwide. Like everything is out of control here. And Amazon, and I say this with all happiness too, Amazon is, um, they're built, they have two giant buildings downtown. They built these signature sphere biosphere thing. That's actually, I was appalled by when I first saw the plans. It's actually really cool. I would write, I've been a letterpress printing a book at a school that is like two blocks from the Amazon uh, headquarters, and they're building a third uh, big tower. They have like 30-something buildings. They own – Amazon is leasing almost 17% of all office space in Seattle right now, of all office wow. space, not just downtown. That's stunning. It, the whole pace, they have 8 million square feet, and they're on track to like 10 in a couple years. They have 10,000 open jobs in our – I think it's that's just – like white collar jobs, not including, uh, I mean, just in our state, I think mostly downtown. So the, the pace, it's just unbelievable. But the most interesting thing to me is they chose to stay downtown. They were 
um, they were kind of always around there. Like Jeff founded the business in his, uh, his garage in Bellevue, which is on the east side, not Seattle proper. And that was just a temporary thing. But then they had an office, uh, down south of what used to be the kingdom. We still call it Soto, um, next to Pecos Pit, the best barbecue in Seattle. Then they were in the, the beautiful, um, heroin district of Seattle. That's when I worked there for about six months, uh, 11 years ago. We were, uh, across the street from the methadone clinic. Uh, and then they started, then they moved to the, um, the Lex Luthor uh, building on the hill is the tallest building or the highest point in Seattle with a giant building on it. It's an old medical center. They leased the whole thing and they immediately outstripped that. Then they started having all these, they started leasing all these Paul Allen buildings and then they have all this stuff built. So Vulcan and uh, some other local, Vulcan is Paul Allen's uh, real estate company. They've been selling property to Amazon, other local contractors. Anyway, so it's this massive, massive building boom. And it's not just Amazon, it's Google and Facebook have bigger and bigger operations. I was in a, Facebook's kind of small temporary offices, which I think has like a thousand people in it. That's uh, not quite in downtown and they're building a, and so it's, it's out of control, but here's my thing. They're downtown and, and Apple is in Cupertino. Facebook's in what Mountain View or something. Yeah. They're, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, all these other companies are often the, the burbs cause they got founded out there and they grew and there's no, um, they're not part of the life of the city. So, <laughs> this whole long thing is employee retention. A lot of young people and a lot of people looking for a change in life who are not necessarily young, young, they want to be in a city and yeah. they're making wages where they can afford to have a condo or an apartment uh, that's very nice and it's within walking distance or we have streetcars and yeah. light rail now and all this stuff. So um, being, and, you know, the spaceship in the suburb is maybe not the best strategy. And it's not for cheap. It, Seattle's not cheap, but it's the, the like housing is not crazy like San Francisco. San Francisco. We're, yeah, we're like is, half or something. Yeah. We're like half as much, I think, but it, it, it's, it's, it's growing very rapidly, but we're still much but that's a, it's a big, anyway, but it is, and it is a recruiting problem. And it, and it certainly is true for the younger you are, the more likely you are to want to live in a city. And it's a big problem for these valley companies because they, they can shove all the money they want and make the buses as nice as they can. And they are, by all accounts, very nice buses, you know, uh, you know, so that if you live in San Francisco, you can catch the Apple bus and instead of driving to work and be yeah, annoyed. Still on, it's like still an hour plus on the, on the bus, right? right. Something or more. There's an hour at least on the, it depends on which the time is a lot of, day. you know, uh, it's Amazon still is, employees. There are a lot of Amazon employees who are living in an apartment that like a view of the water and they go downstairs and they walk a few blocks and they're right. at work, which may be healthy or not, but, yeah. or we have, we have, like, we're, there's all these condos. I mean, I have ne- I've lived in Seattle for 20-something years, and I much prefer – talking to nonprofits, too, about how this has affected um, nonprofits that serve, uh, like, uh, endangered communities, uh, women who need shelter and home- voting homelessness and so forth. And um, everyone's saying the same thing. is like, this is really hard in everybody, the housing increase, but would we prefer the reverse? No. Like, less money, no growth. No jobs? No, that's terrible. So we can, with money and resources, we can kind of help people and lift up folks because there's the work there for them. But um, it is uh, it is like being in one of those cartoons where there's going bump, 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 bump in the background the whole time. <laughs> so anyway, I, my understanding, I don't know what the original Apple plan was with the new campus with it was – if the if the original idea was that almost all Apple employees would move there and they would like, I thought it was. I think it? It, I think so, and I seem to recall that Jobs kind of tackled it the way he tackled, you know, his deep deep involvement with Pixar's uh, 
campus, you know, and that he, you know, which by all accounts is, is a, you know, Pixar people love their, their building and they love, yeah. you know, there's these ideas that he had that, you know, everybody would have to, you know, restrooms are, are located in a, strategically in a way that you're going to bump into people who aren't just from your team, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. And that all of these ideas that, that he had worked out. Um, and I think that that was sort of the idea, a lot of the idea of Apple Park, or at least the spaceship, that it would be designed in a way that would foster people bumping into each other and blah, blah, blah. Um, but my understanding now is that Apple isn't, isn't leaving any office space. I don't, maybe no, some I think of the, that's what I'd heard is maybe, they're keeping, I think they're keeping everything because they've grown faster than they could have. I mean, I, I thought they were going to try to get almost all their core teams. Yeah. So maybe there's outlying teams or different groups, or maybe I don't even marketing wouldn't and be there, in the, I mean, and there sorry, might be, sorry, marketing, maybe not, but well, and there might be some small, uh, you know, some of the small buildings that aren't, you wouldn't think of as Apple buildings when you drive down the street in Cupertino, maybe they'll, they'll get rid of, but you know, the main infinite loop campus is going to remain fully occupied. Yeah, I think it's um, interesting. I, this is actually one more Amazon point related to that, though, is because um, Apple's in, you know, they're in a suburb and they're not, I mean, you've walked there. I mean, one if you're in one spot, but there's not enough restaurants to absorb um, this many people. And Amazon specifically, I met with the their VP of real estate, they specifically designed their facilities. They can only feed about a third. There's only like room to have a third of the staff actually eat lunch inside the buildings. And they have all these restaurants and cafeterias and whatever. So they are essentially either forcing people to bring food in and people who are working in these environments typically buy food. I don't know how they bring it in um, because they're making, they're paying piles of money. So I'll eat, eat out. So there's a bazillion restaurants and they also encourage local restaurants. So it's not just big chains. It's a lot of like one-off or small chains all across this neighborhood. It's a, and it's part of their philosophy of creating this, um, you know, downtown or this environment and Apple began by being in the burbs. It's like, uh, I don't know if you've been to Microsoft's campus, but, um, you know, it's kind of, it's very self-contained. I have, I have world. never, I have never stepped foot in the state of Washington. No, is it? Well, someday you will give you a tour right I, here. I, I can't it's explain pretty, why, uh, it, I, stuff doesn't happen here. I have, I, I have, probably, gonna... I probably have more friends in, and <laughs> I really do. I, I have enormous, you know, uh, Brent Simmons is up there. Uh, I know a bunch of people, Omni, uh, uh, Maltz. Oh, that's funny. I didn't really never been here. Well, I mean, geez, have to come out at some point. Well, I mean, geez, with you and Maltz, I mean, it's like half the regular rotation of the talk show is, is <laughs> from Washington. But I've never had talk reason to live. go there. I've never had reason talk to go there. I, I, I but don't Microsoft, Microsoft's off in the suburbs. They started out there. They were kind of, you know, they were suburban kids that started Microsoft and they stayed out there. But, you know, you can drive places from campus or some right. stuff within walking distance, but not very much. So it's really an insular thing. And I just think, again, I think this is, um, uh, one of the reasons Amazon built its whole thing, they planned this partly not just to have room for stuff, but they planned it partly to appeal. They are creating a lifestyle mall of sorts around their offices. And they're saying, when you come to work for us, you're not going to be off in a sterile thing with an hour commute away. I mean, you can choose to live out of town. You can choose to live wherever. And they're paying highly competitive salaries so people can choose to live essentially wherever. Right. But like, and they're, they've been underwriting, they underwrite some streetcar service. They've been helping promote transit taxes and ballot measures. So like, you can take streetcars all like to Amazon for all these different places now. Um, it's a very different thing than this. Come to the spaceship, or maybe the spaceship. Maybe you'll be in our old building, and uh, <laughs> and we're off in the suburbs. So I don't know. Uh, I do think I've judging from the private feedback I've gotten from some Apple employees, there is a hundred. I'm a hundred percent certain there's going to be some some degree of attrition based on the open floor plans, where good employees are going to choose to leave because they're they don't want to work there. 
uh, and they don't want. I can you understand. Know, can you imagine? They don't want. There's no. Yeah. And, and they, they, you know, if they don't find. I, and like well, one that email I got from somebody was perfect, and it's, it's perfectly Apple person sensibility. He's not screaming. He's not angry. You know, it's just you know. It is what it is, and he's dealing with it. He said, you know, I'm working on something. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's a new thing that I think is going to blow people's minds when we ship. Uh, and like a typical Apple employee, you know, it offers me no clue what the, what it is. And, of course, I don't ask because I know he's not going to tell me. It's, you know, this is how it is. But he's working on – he's on some team. He's working on something cool. Uh, he definitely wants to see it ship. Uh, but his team is moving to Apple Campus too. And then once they ship, if he doesn't like it, he's he's out. And he's been there. He's an eighteen-year mm-hmm. veteran of Apple. He's been at Apple for eighteen years. So, and and that's I got a couple of others from people like that too. Like I'm not going to quit before they move me there. Uh, I'm going to see what it's like. But if it's as shitty as I think it's going to be, I'm out. Yep, I can under. I yep. It's like what's it like to go to work every day and have your entire day, you know, disrupted? If that's what it turns out to be, it may be that they're that what we've seen isn't as full of realization right. of what it's going to look like, right. but it's clear there aren't a lot of offices with doors and even the spaces that look like they're closed spaces are all glass. And I'm like, right. look, I have, I have, uh, I discovered in my, my relatively old age here, I clearly have sensory processing disorder. Yeah, it's yeah. this very interesting thing. I'm trying to, to dissent and it's very common among folks who are uh, programmers and uh, engineer types like myself. I've done a lot of programming in my life. I have a mind for it. And there's an affinity, I think, between different things. And I, um, I'm super highly attentive to anything. So uh, high registration, it's called. And so I see, and inter- it's very hard for me. I get keyed up and um, I can't, I try to work in a co-working space. I really like the people in the space. It was open. It was very affordable. And even with headphones and a screen I was staring at, it was just too much stuff around me. I could not focus. I had to go back into my my quiet, daylit basement. So I um, have a lot of sympathy for the folks who are going to be in that environment. I think I have a, well, it's, touch of that uh i you know what i do i cannot help but look at a tv and so whenever yeah, yeah, whenever yeah. we go out to eat as a family i strategically and you know, i don't make a big deal out of it it's not like i i i i'm a you know princess on the on the p and i absolutely have to have a seat with no view of a tv but i do try <laughs> when we get like oh here's your table uh i try to pick a seat where i don't have a sight line to a tv because if i do i'm going to be looking at it and my wife's gonna be like what are you looking at you don't even you know if it's like a basketball game or something you know that of two teams i don't care about like why are you watching that and it's like i don't know like, i don't <laughs> i don't know but there's it, a, but there's a tv there's a, in my, called... there's a tv in my view line i'm going mm-hmm. to be looking at it there's a book called Too Loud, Too Bright that I've been reading and marking up. I don't mark up books, and this one I have, I've never done it before. My wife's like, you should mark this up. I have highlighters and like those uh, post-it tags all over the thing uh, because I'm just – it's like all – it's like I feel like I've been written in a book. It's a bunch of different traits you have about yourself you didn't realize were actually all connected to one neurological state, and there's ways to be, train yourself out of responsiveness to it. So I haven't gotten – to that part yet, but um, it's uh, you desensitize yourself so you can function better in the world. If you walk into Costco uh, or IKEA and you need to go cry in a corner, you may have. Well, you may be just a normal person also, but you may have the sensory <laughs> processing disorder. Uh, I have a friend who works at Apple who uh, I know is not looking for is definitely on a team that's moving to AC two. I, I keep calling it AC two. I can't get used to Apple Park, uh, and is not looking forward to it. He isn't. He has not. I don't think he's. He, he hasn't said anything like if I don't like it, I'm leaving. He just thinks it sucks. Uh, and so when I linked on Daring Fireball, I don't know if you saw it, but I, I saw that I, I it was like you rickrolled me. And I'm like, right. wait, what are these? Like, oh, yeah. I love a post like that. It's like to to really it's make great. this like a director's commentary, like me talking about how I write <laughs> Daring Fireball. So I wrote, I had a post uh, where 
a link post, very short. The headline was video footage from one of the open workspaces in Apple Park. And I wrote, <laughs> really does seem like a different vibe from the Infinite Loop campus. Some engineers are getting are getting their own offices, but they don't seem great either. Oh and, my and God. the link <laughs> goes to footage from Terry Gilliam's masterpiece Brazil, and there's a great tracking shot of this open area. It's a <laughs> if you've not seen Brazil, it is it is 1980. It's like the the pitch is let's do 1984, but make it we'll make it a comedy. Except it's a it's such a great film. Except it's actually a more profound tragedy at the end than 1984. Uh, Sidebar: Have you seen the made for TV edit? Yes, yeah. I, I used to be yeah. upset when I was in the nineties. Travesty. When I was in the ninety in the nineties, I actually thought maybe I would like to be a filmmaker. I, I really have oh, such yeah, a yeah. profound love of movies. Uh, and a friend of mine and I from college, we got deep, and we just started like when our eyes were opened to the great world of cinema, and that it it it, it was. That and that old movies there are old movies that are every bit as good or better than new movies. Uh, don't let you know, just don't let the production quality or like the black and white, you know, like, like deep dive, like watch 20 Hitchcock films, watched you know, uh, just went on benders like that. Uh, but uh, Brazil became like one of our obsessions where like we watched it over and over again, and then when we found out that there, there was a terrible TV edit, we're like, well, we have to watch it. And and but and it was great though because we had seen you know. Gilliam's vision of it so many times that we knew it by heart and so yeah we it's not just the brutal parts that, of the TV edit it was like even the little things like oh my god why would they take that out you know but anyway I linked to that and it's a very great movie I, I anybody listening to this if you've never seen Brazil I swear to god move it to the top of your like I don't know if it's on Netflix but if you you know go watch it it is such a wonderful wonderful movie but it's a dystopic <laughs> open floor plan uh, workspace uh, and I'll it, tell you, tiny admission is, uh, you know, I used to get uh, a little high as a kid back when, uh, before it was legal in my state and various states. And uh, I was a huge Brazil fan. I'd watched a bunch of times. And it comes on TV and I'm at some friend's house and we're toasted. And I actually thought I was had a psychotic break because I watched the TV. <laughs> it was the first time I'd seen the made-for-TV version. And it didn't end the way I remembered. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm hallucinating. <laughs> like, and I was also like, it's terrible. My hallucination is so awful. Nancy Reagan was right. <laughs> No, but anyway, I sent I sent after I posted that I sent, I sent my friend at Apple a, a DM and I just wrote uh, <laughs> I wrote I just wrote this was for you and and sent a link to it and then he wrote he wrote that was DF's best post of the week. <laughs> so anyway, Apple employees oh are definitely oh, have strong opinions about this open floor plan, and for the most part, it's oh. it ranges from hatred to at best ambivalence. This is this is something to keep an eye on, in my opinion, moving forward. Anyway, I got to take a break here. I got to thank our next sponsor. I got to we got to wrap up the show. We've been getting close to the end here, uh, and I want to thank our friends at Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. Make your next move with Squarespace. Make your next uh, website using Squarespace. What is Squarespace? I can't explain strongly enough uh, that Squarespace is literally an all-in-one website platform. You can register your domain there. They host the site. They have the CMS so that if it's like a blog and you have updates, you know, you, you do it all through Squarespace and it's a great interface for something like that. You can host a podcast there. 
you can have a store there. And if you have a store, if you need to have stuff to sell, the, the commerce part of it is all built into the Squarespace platform. So it's not like, oh, now you have to go to PayPal or whatever you want to use as your backend and figure out a way to hook it into. There's nothing to hook in or hook up. It's a, just turn it on and say, I want to have a store and I want to start entering uh, SKUs and pictures of the items. That's all you have to do. I cannot explain just how all-in-one the all-in-one nature of Squarespace is. And I also cannot emphasize strongly enough just how many of the websites you use on a daily basis are, in fact, Squarespace sites. You'd, you'd be shocked. Uh, I swear to God, go look at Pixar.com. Pixar.com and then view source on it, and you will find in the source that it's a Squarespace site. I don't know if the whole Pixar.com is. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they have parts that are not. But uh, the homepage with the big Cars 3 thing is made with Squarespace. I mean, this... and. and I cannot emphasize if in the back of my mind, I always think that if there's a reason that people don't try Squarespace is that they think, because this is what I would think if I was out there listening to me tell you to try Squarespace, I would think, eh, I don't want to pick from 10 templates and all 10 of them look like a Squarespace site. Uh, you know, like back in the day when you'd install WordPress or something like that, and the, there were only like three default themes. And so as soon as you looked at a site, you could say, ah, I can tell they use WordPress because it's a default theme. Squarespace is so profoundly open to, to design ideas that, you know, it, you will have your brand on it to the degree that you would a site that you built from the ground up the old fashioned way with code. So go check them out. Uh, the website is squarespace.com and, uh, slash talk show, go to squarespace.com slash talk show. Uh, or maybe it's slash Gruber. I forget. Try them both. Try slash slash Gruber or slash talk show. And one of them is going to give you 10% off your first order. My thanks to Squarespace. Want to talk about some letterpress? Yes, let's do that. that. I want to do that I because I love, love, love uh, getting people to pitch their things on this. So you tell me about You've got a, a book that is on the cusp of coming out. It's yeah. Well, it's been a very interesting thing. Is I uh, I've been I, I it's a, I'm printing a book of reporting I did um, about. Uh, and I say reporting. I keep thinking of saying like, well, it's a book of writing on. It's like no, these are actually reported pieces I did. Uh, some appeared in the Atlantic. Uh, some appeared at meh dot com, which has uh, uh, had me write stuff for their forums, and uh, some I've written for the book uh, or for other places. And it's uh, reporting on things like the history of unintentionally or intentionally blank pages which dates back to like the 1470s, it turns out. People started to mark this page intentionally blank. And um, uh, the, like whether, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about um, quotation marks, whether we're going to stop seeing curly quotation marks. They might disappear because people have lost the desire or finesse and was there ever a reason. And so I collected, I was like, you know, I want to do something with this. I want to do something for myself that's new and creative in 2017. And um, I called up... Uh, the uh, woman who runs the letterpress program at the School of Visual Concepts here in Seattle, who I'd taken a, a letterpress class from, and I'd done some letterpress back in the 1980s also. Um, you know, I've been a graphic designer for 30 years. I've studied graphic design. I've designed books. And I'm like, you know, I, was, I called her to see if she had any ideas about where I could get something like this printed, thinking some offset or digital printing thing. And she said, uh, uh, you should print it on letterpress. You should be our designer in residence for this year. We're starting the program. You should be our first person. I'm like, okay, great. And so... <laughs> So I threw myself into classes, got up to speed, designed the book, and then uh, the last uh, – until about last week, I spent six weeks uh, printing the book uh, by hand on a uh, uh, proof press that's about 70 years old, flatbed proof press, and um, it's uh, getting close to being done. i got to do a little more work. I have end papers to print and a cover, and then I've got a book binder who's actually putting the thing 
together for me and handing off that piece of expertise. But um, so the that's status, the, that's the, the status project. For, and, and so you did a Kickstarter, and you only sold a hundred copies of the book. Yeah, it's a numbered, uh, signed, numbered, limited edition run. Right, I got uh, I'll have some. I got to tell you something right now. Yeah. I got to tell you. I, I I knew you were going to do this. I think you told me before you did it. And I right up my alley. I love I love number one. I'm just a fan of your work, uh, but I love graphic design. I love the idea of doing something by hand. So of course I was on board. And then the Kickstarter came and went, and I I just I, I wasn't paying attention, and I didn't get in, so I didn't get a copy of your book. Well, you know, I'm, I ha- will have some artist proofs afterwards. So I'm gonna I have to make. So it's this whole. So I, actually, I'll tell you about this too because I thought this was this is actually great for your. Can you hook a brother up, Glenn? <laughs> I can, I will have, yeah. So I mean, you got to do, there's like a yield issue because this is the first time I've never printed a book before. I've done other letterpress projects. So the scale of this. And for starters, I didn't, this is not a handset book. This is a book I'm using a process called uh, using photopolymer plates, which is a, um, it's a technology used for printing packaging materials mostly, but there's a sub culture of it that, that uses the same material. There's service bureaus and you, so I designed this in InDesign. Uh, picked appropriate fonts that would work and uh, licensed correctly and uh, sent it off to the service bureau and they sent me back printing plates and they're like it's like a rubbery material hmm. um, so you expose it just like in the old days we'd you know you'd make film and the film would be exposed to an offset plate and you'd wind up with mm-hmm. an offset plate that would go on press I get this stuff is relief material um, and it's used mostly like I say like 99.9% of it is for printing uh, plastic bags of uh, mulch and um, the labels on your stuff anything that's an irregular surface or whatever is printed with uh, flexography using photopolymer plates and um anyway so this is printed on a letterpress but it's not printed with it's not metal uh, or wood type um although i did i put an easter egg in there is actually a line set in six point italic type that's in the book that's a little joke that i did in metal and i did the last thing i did is that last little bit um but so there's just so the thing I realized in doing this, I was working on this and I'm kind of churning away. And I'm on this pre- press that has it runs the ink rollers automatically. So you put ink on a metal roller and it distributes it and it has a reciprocating thing that moves back and forth to make it even. So you can get presses that are even more primitive where you're actually running a brayer over the stuff you're trying to print. In this case, I've got like this is a motorized thing, it takes a big part of it out, but there's still a manual crank. So I'm sitting there, it takes about three turns of the crank to go from one end of the press to the other to do each sheet. Uh, and I wound up, I think I've done about 12,000 passes on the press wow. to do this book so far. So right now the um, status of the book is that it it's been printed and so it's on paper there are sheets of paper it's on paper uh, and you had to do did you have to do the thing where you had to collate it so that like page 11 is on one side yeah, and page oh my god 47 or whatever or you know 88 is on the other side right I know you I know you love this stuff so I'll tell you, yeah, I have, I actually posted, I had this planning document. I started with a simple document. I was like, well, I should just lay this out. I needed the imposition. And then it got more and more complicated. Now it's like this incredibly dense thing with like ink color. And I'm using a paper that has a deckle edge, but the parent sheets are 25 and a half by 38 inches. So the deckle is along the two, uh, it's along the long edge. Um, and it's machine made. So it's made continuously. So it only has a deckle edge on, this is the, un- so folks who don't know deckle edges, that's that rough edge you see. Sometimes it's made by like, actually being stamped out by a form. So a lot of books, you get a book club edition book and it has a fake decal edge right. that's stamped out. And you can tell it's fake because the decal, the edge is even all the way across. Right. If it's a true decal edge, it's the edge of the form, which is called the decal that the um, that the wood pulp is sieved on top of and the water's drained out, it's pressed and dried. If it's a true decal edge, it's feathery on the edge. That's how you tell the difference. Right. So I got a paper with a decal edge, but because the sheets are so big, I can only have a decal edge on every other sheet of paper. 
These, this is a 64-page book finished. I'm printing it four up on each side. So each press sheet has four pages on each side. So <laughs> in order to get the deckle edges to alternate, not only did I have to figure out how to impose four 16-page signatures, but also rotate each on each sheet one of the folios, the two-page things that are going to be folded in half when it's cut down, I had to flip that so the deckle edge would be alternating when the final book was made. It was a little... So I made folding dummies out of paper and numbered them and took them apart and then turned this into a digital document. Mm. It was a lot of fun. I, I, it's one of those... Being a printer is sort of one of those things. And, and, and I think you and I share, have so many shared interests, but like one of the other things... I, I, I really love mechanical watches. And I think watchmakers... Watchmakers oh, yeah. think like programmers. It is... It, it might be what I... If I was living 100 years ago, maybe what I would have done is get into watchmaking because it's it's all if this then that you know this will turn at this rate and if this every once every you know eighth of a second it's going to hit this and when it hits this it's going to turn this and one logical this then it'll touch this and then the second hand will tick one eighth of a second on the dial of the watch printers think have the same thing like where printers sit there and can you know strategically algorithmically well one goes here, two goes there, three goes there. And that's why I always loved spending time in the print shop back in my graphic design days. I loved going there and I just loved picking the minds and, well, show me how you set that up. And they, you know, mm-hmm. most, most people, you know, who, who take pride in their work. And that's another thing too. I don't know anybody who ever went to work in a print shop is like a printer who didn't take tremendous pride in their work. They were, they're all, you know, and, and they could spot errors a million miles away. Yeah, you get you wouldn't you wouldn't last. Is the kind of thing. But well, here's the thing. I at some point, as uh, actually, I was talking to my friend uh, uh, Becky Slatkin, who I uh, is one of the funniest people. She's I, I, I'm going to embarrass her. If she's listening to this because she's one of the funniest people on Twitter. Doesn't tweet a lot. She's an iOS developer back east. Rebecca Slatkin is her Twitter handle. I recommend following her if you're a programmer or you like programming related humor because um, she's just so dry. Yes, there's no vermouth in her tweets at all. Yes, and I was talking the other day and I was she's asking how the book was going. And I was like, you know. I just realized something. Your programming tweets and my my letterpress actually have a lot in common. <laughs> She's like, "What are you talking about?" And it was I realized the this letterpress I'm working on it's like Xcode. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Yeah, uh, because <laughs> you can already see the metaphor. It's like it's like I have a device that I didn't make, and it's kind of wonky and weird. And when you're using letterpress printing, you have these parameters. You have you have where the relief. It's a relief process, so you have to raise it off the bed of the press by exactly point. 918 inches is type high. So anything that takes ink should be exactly that high, no no higher or no lower, which is a whole thing when you look at the history of how type was made, that it was possible in early industrial days that they could get it that exact. Gutenberg was a genius, right? So there's that thing. Then you have ink rollers, which can be raised or lowered, and the ink rollers have to have the relationship because you don't want to over-ink, you don't want to under-ink. Then you have this thing, This and the one I'm using is a cylinder press, and there's a tympan on top, which is a piece of paper, like a kind of slightly waxed oil paper, on which you place the paper paper that you're printing on over. The tympan is packing underneath, and the packing has to be raised to, I mean, working in thousandth or or five, ten thousandths of an inch increments. I, we have a, a, cal, a, a digital caliper. So I'm constantly working on the difference between, say, 0.047 and 0.046 inches, and sometimes a little bit less than that. So wow. this is the degree of precision you're working with on equipment that, again, it's 70 years old, um, and we have presses in the shop that are like 120 years old that are a little different. So I realize I'm messing with this machine. I'm like, I'm like, 
this is really, this is so much like programming, even though I'm working in this very analog environment. You're making tiny changes, you're tweaking stuff, then you kind of run your tests and you see, you're looking at the feedback out of the machine. It's a little bit of a black box. You're looking at it and I, I'm building in my head a mechanical model of the press. And the better I can model in my head what the press is doing and all the relationships between all the parts, the better I can program in all these settings that are all, you know, I'm, I'm pulling off these rollers and there's like a set screw you use a hex wrench and a, you're turning there's no there's no um mark so i have to turn something like one eighth of a rotation of a screw to move the ink rollers up you know one thousandth of an inch um and it, it, it actually struck me as a longtime programmer of on a low level like i'm a scripter not a not a objective c writer um it struck me how much this felt like actually debugging code yeah yeah very much so yeah, debugging, it's the right, that right mindset, right? Or you, <laughs> you got to start working backwards, you know, and well, yeah, fine detail. You know, and you can, well, let's just do this and it'll at least show us if it's, that's the problem, you know, you know, like putting a print statement in. <laughs> and then, like with Xcode, sometimes you're just baffled, it's throwing out errors right. and you're like, why yeah, can't, it, why won't you sign this code and right. upload it? What's the better? And, All right. So uh, you know, I, I want to mention before we, we, we move on, I want to mention that uh, the, the print edition of the book is a limited edition. There is some mention on your site that there are going to be a couple of copies that you might sell for and donate the proceeds to a, a charitable cause or something like that. I, could, I, I, right. would, I would like one of those. That's what I would like to do. I don't I want will, a freebie. I, I, want, I, want to, I want to put some money towards a good cause. And I'm, but I do I want will to. I've got to figure out the best cause. Right? It might be ACLU. It might be uh, American Islamic Relations. I've got to figure out a good no. cause for it. Because I, I feel like this, this was a great thing. The Kickstarter funded all my expenses for uh, all materials. It's kind of breaking even. But I I feel like this year, especially, I'm like, I can't. This is, this was for me. It was great, but I want to do something that affects I don't feel, other people. I feel like the ACLU is. They don't really have much going on. They got. I know. It's, uh, <laughs> they've been doing okay with fundraising. I want to find like another group that needs a little more money. Um, but I'll have some artist proof. So this is it's like this incredible thing too. So I started. I want 100 copies of the book. So essentially, right. I started with about printing 200 pages for, or 200 sheets for each. Uh, press sheet um, because I knew things could go wrong so it's actually some pages have three colors on them right. which means multiple passes which means more to go wrong so I'm hoping I'm going to be able to get out about 125 to 140 copies right. at the end that are good quality copies and then I'll have some to give to people who are help with the book and then I'll have some to sell how much, as artist proofs but how much pressure did you feel to not have typos like how much, what's the over under do you think on how many typos have made it in do you, are you aware of any now that you've printed it are you aware of any typos already that now you can't fix no, I know. Isn't this the terrible? It's a terrible feeling. I mean, it's like the worst thing when you're used to working with interactive media to go like, oh my god, I can never fix this. I, I'm sort of so so far, I have not spotted anything that's wrong in the book, which is astonishing because I've been looking at it a lot. Um, Jeff, I, some of these pieces already appeared in print and had been proofread. Uh, others of them had not, or I'd taken an earlier, larger, longer form than it wound up in, in uh, online. And Jeff Carlson, he has no responsibility for errors, but he did a, a, a editing and proofing right. pass for me at the end of the whole thing too. So it's it's pretty. I mean. I've looked at it so much. I think I've fixed uh, everything. But you know what I'm thinking of doing, John, is I think there was enough interest in the book that I – and I, I, I've been thinking of doing an uh, offset edition that will be twice as long. So I got a bunch of stuff I hmm. couldn't fit in well, that's, that's in the same vein. Um, I just wrote a long piece for uh, Wired about like letterpress and technology, and um, I have the rights back to that after uh, 90 days, so which is only a couple months away. So I may do an offset edition that's like 128 pages, and I'll including – I have um, – with this campaign, I did uh, 
both the limited edition, but there's also an ebook that's going to include right. writing about the process of making the book. So and, that'll wind up in an offset and, version too. And I, I, this is, I definitely want to mention this is that the ebook, you can still get it right now. It, I, like it's, or you could, yeah, I'm selling it on the site. So you go to the, uh, you can go in, uh, I've got a commerce page and you can buy a, where, where is that? What site is copy that? What's the best one? To, it's, to... uh, it's, it's if you go to um, it's a good question. I know I'm so I'm so organized about this. It's uh, I've got a destination page, and of course I can't remember what it is. Um, if you go to glog.glenf.com, um, I will put a I should put a link up because yeah. I had a link up about being able to uh, buy copies and um, what is it? Oh, it's hand, it's glog.glenf.com slash hands dash on dash patronage, which is a terrible URL. All right. <laughs> but that's that's the URL, and then uh, there's also a keepsake that's part of the project that I'm printing as well. That's that's not related to the book that uh, okay. I'm still working on. Uh, so anyway, this is great. I am so looking forward to it. Uh, I, I, and you know, it's a lot of fun. Does does the when you the room where you printed it did the did it does it have a good smell? Oh yeah, it's great, and I'm using. Um, it's. I mean, it's the room is full of metal type and wood type. Most and print shops got, to me have uh, the most amazing smell. I just love it. Yeah. The, the ink, you know, it's it's a it's 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 an incredibly physical thing. So I would be sometimes printing for eight or nine hours a day, and I'd look at my Fitbit and I'd walk, you know, like ten thousand steps in the shop, just walking three steps forward, three steps back to it's, crank that thing. The, the smell, um, it's sort of the closest I can think of is it's sort of like a, any kind of machine shop has that smell of metal and grease, uh, mm -hmm. but but ink has a smell too, and paper has a smell that that sort of gives a print shop a unique. A different than like any other something else like a metalworking shop or something. It's a oh, yeah. great and smell. Everything feels good too. It's like everything has a texture and you're listening. It's also this whole thing. There's one of the things that letterpress printers talk about a lot and I've been learning is there's a sound. It's a machine. So if it, if you get the wrong sound, then you should be able to hear that and know that something's wrong. And I've been tuning into that. We have a, a platen press. It's a pinwheel thing where you spin a wheel and there's a, a this one has a foot pedal on it, foot treadle, and I recorded it in slow motion um, one night. And then listening to slow motion, it makes a tolling of a bell. The spring action when it's slowed down, it's just bong, bong, bong. It's this beautiful thing. One of the most amazing things I I it, it, I, I couldn't believe it, but back in college, uh, I don't even know how I lucked into this, but there was a trade show here in Philadelphia, like a big convention of print print stuff, you know, and people trying to sell you big, expensive, professional print things and stuff like that. And I got to go with the dean of Drexel's College of Design. I don't know how, because I wasn't in the College of Design. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I, 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 I guess it might have been the year after I graduated, because I was hired to build their website. And I guess that's how I got involved. But I did take a lot of class. Anyway, but it was me and the dean of the College of Design touring this convention. And he said, hey, you want to take notice of something? Notice how many of the guys, when you shake people's hands or you just walk past them, notice how many people are missing. You know what I'm going to say? Notice yes. how many people are missing a finger or like the tip of a finger. Oh, and yeah. the idea is that so much happens so fast in print shops, and there's so many ways that you could lose the tip of a finger. And and you tour here, and you, it's all these you know guys like you know in their fifties, sixties guys who had spent their career in print. And it was unbelievable how many people were missing like the tip of a finger or like a pinky or something like that. And he said there's an awful lot of people who lose lose the tip of a finger, and it's the sort of mistake you only make once. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, this is this is right. We have uh, in the north in the in Seattle, we have a fellow who's a uh, letterpress repairman, and it's sort of his full time job. He prints too, but he used to be a motorcycle racer, and he had an accident that made it impossible for him to uh, race comfortably after that. Uh, but he knew how to take apart and rebuild motorcycles, and he gets kind of a wind of letterpress uh, and discovers. And this is, I mean, I'm talking about just several years ago, not like 30 years ago. He's a young guy, and um, he realizes letterpresses are much simpler to his mind than motorcycles. So he he learns reads the manuals are all online. I mean, you can find these right. scanned Google books of things from 70, 100 years ago. And he learns how to take these things apart. And because of him, if it weren't for him, I think a lot, uh, there's a pretty big Northwest letterpress community. And I think Seattle would be impoverished without um, his yeah. assistance because he knows stuff that people haven't known for you know 50 years or 40 years. He has relearned it and right. taught it to other people. Yeah. Uh yeah, I believe it. I believe that one person could make a difference in. in oh yeah, he's missing part of a finger. That's why I was thinking. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sad part. Uh, hey, let me take one last break here and thank our our last sponsor, and it's our friends at Mail Route. You know who should handle your email security and delivery? People who do only that. That's MailRoute. MailRoute's a team of people who have been in business for a long time, and all they do, the whole company, is just devoted to email. That's really what they do. They don't even host email. What they do is they know how to filter email. Uh, Postini went away. Uh, McAfee and MX Logic they had similar services. They've gotten out of the business. And even Google has come out and said that if you want that, they recommend that you use a gateway service like MailRoutes to filter your mail. Here's what you do: you keep your domain that you already have for email, and you just change the MX records. Just that's the DNS, the you know that so that everybody knows that like at daringfireball.net. Uh, Where's the server? The MX record says to a, a email, another email server that's sending email. If you're sending it to somebody there, that's where the server goes. So it goes to mail route first. They filter out all the junk and then they just forward it immediately, like in a hundredth of a second, right on to your existing mail server. So in other words, what would have come right into your mail server instead just goes through a thin filter at mail route first and then goes on to you and they keep all the junk and viruses and that's all that they do. That's their service. But they, because that's all they do, they, this is like the Cadillac of mail filtering. I mean, this is got everything you could want. They have APIs. So you can, if you're a programmer, you can customize the way all this works, um, they have all sorts of great things so you can get like a, if you want you can get like a weekly digest for every user every email address that gives you a list of here's what's been filtered here's a list of emails that were like maybe on the fence and you can quick eyeball that list to see if anything got flagged that shouldn't uh or if you want that more frequently you can get it more frequently if you don't want to get it at all you don't have to get it at all you can just set it and forget it it is absolutely a fantastic service a do one thing and do it as well as you can type thing. I don't know of any other company that does this, that does what MailRoute does as a dedicated service. Um, where do you go to find out more? And by the way, get a 30-day free trial. So you go try it for an entire month, completely free of charge. And if you don't like it, all you have to do to undo it is just change your MX records back to where they were before. Like they don't, I, I just can't explain how easy it is to turn this on and how easy it is to turn it off. If you're tempted by this free trial, go to mailroute.net slash TTS, TTS for the talk show. And uh, if you use that code, if you use that URL, uh, you'll get 10% off for the lifetime of your account. As Marco Arment says on ATP, it's the best deal on the internet because you could use this for 20 years and you're still getting that 10% off every single month for the lifetime of your account. My thanks to MailRoute for sponsoring the talk show. Uh, we got to go into speed round now, Glenn. We've been going for a while. 
Boom. Okay. Uh, Apple inadvertently leaks HomePod OS, spilling many oh, beans. Oh, this is embarrassing. Wow. It's always that thing of like, did somebody get fired? I don't know. I mean, <sighs> it's just, wow. That's that's the worst thing for them. I, I almost, I suspect nobody got fired because I think whoever was ultimately responsible for that, nobody feels worse than, than they do. Uh, so yeah. what happened is Apple was apparently, this is, I guess I can't prove it. This is what I've heard. Uh, it was, uh, it was on the cusp or maybe they already have, but they were about to start rolling out a lot, uh, I don't know, hundreds, let's just say hundreds of prototype HomePods to employees. Right. Maybe even more. Um, and, you know, because it's in a revealed product, it's, it's no, no, you know, the wraps are taken off. They can do this. Uh, and apparently this software update that got leaked was meant for them. And I don't know. I don't know enough. Uh, you know, and, and that, so that's the why of why in the world would Apple have, have an OS release for an unreleased product? Well, it's sort of like, you know, it's like the cold opening. You know, it's, it's being released to employees at this point. Uh, but it was a world-readable disk image. And there's some guys like our friend Stephen Troughton-Smith and a couple of other people who, man, do they know what to do. <laughs> when it's, so it's running, apparently it's running a beta version of iOS 11.02. I mean, it's, I, I think the, you know, the numbers get weird, but it's, you know. Yeah. Um, and what they usually do for like, for example, with the public betas and the developer betas of iOS right now, inside Apple, there are versions of the beta versions of iOS 11 that are running on the prototype new iPhones uh, or pre-production, whatever, whatever stage of production they're at now in August. Uh, mm -hmm. And the version that goes to me and you or you good listener of the show, if you're in the developer beta or the public beta of iOS, they, they have in programming terms, the pound if def statement in C, where you can say in your code, if this you know variable has been defined, do this. And if it's not, then that code doesn't even go into the compiler. It's called, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I want to make this as layman friendly as possible. It's the pre, you know, the C preprocessor. So this gets processed before the code goes into the compiler. And so all the stuff specific to like the new secret iPhone Pro or whatever doesn't even hit the compiler when they do a build for public release because this this HomePod OS release wasn't meant for public consumption none none of that stuff was defined out i almost feel like that had to be a mistake because i could see why the HomePod specific stuff wasn't but why in the world the release had the images oh no i guess it didn't really I guess that's it. That that it, that the icon that leaked was somehow related to the HomePod somehow. I don't. Hmm. Know. But anyway, all sorts of stuff leaked out, including an icon showing the the D twenty two code named iPhone Pro with the the notch, you know, the bezel to bezel design and the the little notch at the top for the uh, the camera and other sensors. Boy, what a screw up! Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. It, it's um I feel bad well it's interesting because you feel bad for the people involved because um 
this isn't like I had this discussion with somebody the other day. It was about like leaks at companies, and like while I like to find out stuff that's coming before it happens, it's also um, you know when stuff's purposely leaked, you're like, well, unless this is the company's intent, this is somebody who kind of wants to be, um, you know, there's like there's finding color about an issue, and there's like oh, okay, here's what's coming next. When it only has a commercial interest, there's not a um, like public service interest, um, or you know something's wrong and it's being fixed. Uh, in this case, it's just it was just a screw up, and so it's sort of um, the whole thing is sort of sad. So let me. It, it's, among the details that were revealed, this is what I I noted in my post on Daring Fireball: the sound effects of the HomePod, uh, so you can hear like some of the things that the, the little wave files that they have, uh, the icon for the new high end iPhone matching the descriptions. Now that's a bad one. That's it, it, it's, it's bad. But on the other hand, if if for example, if the poor poor soul who was ultimately responsible for this is a listener of the show you can feel a little better because it, that there are part leaks i mean that that it only confirmed what the rumor mill had already said it wasn't like this came out of the blue and nobody it wasn't expecting it that's actually at least at an icon level exactly what we as close followers of the company were expecting Mm-hmm. Uh, the code name for the new high-end iPhone is D22. As far as I can tell, that I did find a link to like a, a, a Apple Insider report from like back in December. That was the first instance I found of D22, where some you know some random you know uh, source in China from the supply chain leaked the thing that said, "Here's a schematic of where the SIM card is moving, and the code name for this phone is D22." Uh, well, it turns out that whoever that source was was exactly right. It is code name D22. Is that really a big deal? No, it's not. Uh, you know, it's not like uh, that. The Apple doesn't really talk about those code names. It's not like you spoiled something from the keynote. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got the display resolution, eleven twenty-five by twenty-four thirty-six. So that's interesting because it's actually different than what Ming Chi Kuo said. He said it was going to be like uh, a little like twelve something by twenty-eight hundred, and that there would be mm-hmm. that there would be an eleven twenty-five by twenty-four thirty-six area within that. That's the usable display. But um, from what Stephen Trout and Smith has uncovered, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like that's the actual display. So there's a there's a little bit of a, a mystery there. Uh, we learned that the HomePod does have a color display, and we learned that there are APIs for the phone to have an infrared-based face recognizer. Well, all of those things only confirm rumors that have already been out there. Right. It's nothing, nothing particularly new, but it's still, uh, it's still, it, I mean, Apple's always fighting against the sale of the next model they haven't made right. yet, right? right? And, and the, the, every detail about something that's gonna come. Although, I think they've defeated, in some level, they've defeated that cycle a bit because they're now in a routine cycle for now years. And we know, and they know, people buying a phone know that in September-ish, there's gonna be a new series announced. It'll be yep. available either shortly after, within a few weeks. Yep. And it's gonna be somewhat better. So it's not like people don't know. Uh, when they get a phone, what's going to happen? The the iPhone eight or whatever it'll be called. Um, I think the word that it's going to be an expensive phone doesn't mean that people are not going to buy a phone now either right. if they are planning to or they need one. So, right. um, but I sort of I assume sales get really slumpy around now, except for people who just don't care. They're just like it's twenty bucks a month. I, or, I think or, it's you know, surprising whatever. how many people don't care. I mean, obviously you can see it. You can look at the this you know look at the charts and you can see that there's a huge spike. For the when the phones just come out, so the the October, November, December quarter has a huge spike because even though the phones usually technically go on sale in September, it's just like at the you know end of September. Uh, whereas and and they often have trouble or almost always have trouble meeting demand, and so the sales don't go on the books until they actually sell it. Um, 
So it's that, you know, that October, November, December quarter is the biggest quarter. But it's also the biggest quarter because it's the holiday quarter and people get iPhones for the holidays. I mean, it's, you know, it, the, the iPods used to have that huge spike in the holiday quarter too because yeah. they were amazing gifts. And I think it's a little bit easier to give somebody an iPod because you just, you're just giving them, it's like giving them a Walkman. You're just giving them an electronic device and you're on your own. Whereas giving somebody a thing that comes with a $30 a month or and up you know I, I wish my cell phone was thirty dollars a month i whatever but giving you don't just give somebody an iphone if they didn't ask for it but i'm sure there are yeah. tons of kids and families and spouses and stuff who it's like you know what you can get me this year i'm going to get a new iphone and give it to me as a christmas gift yeah just add it to the right. yeah uh but, but I, I'm, you I, know, it's I, actually i'm i'm oh. encountering this problem because i want to sell my iphone 6s i'm i uh, have a 7 plus and i was reluctant to switch to it but i'm like yeah it's probably time but then i'm like well i'm gonna get a new phone because of uh, the computational photography stuff that I'm interested in, I will almost certainly get a new phone right. when they come out. So now I'll have two phones to sell and nobody wants a 6S right now, even though it's in good shape because why buy it at, you know, 400 something dollars mm -hmm. a used version of this when the price is going to drop after the 7S ships and people will then, um, you know, be able to get it for a hundred bucks. I think so. I think people who are looking at a used phone are actually savvy about waiting because, uh, yeah. uh, have not been able to find a, I usually can sell any iPhone very quickly if it's in good shape and this time not. Yeah. I don't know though. Anecdotally, I've, a lot of people in my family, like over the summer have been asking me like, Hey, if I'm thinking about getting a new iPhone, which one should I get? And I'm like, just wait. Oh, like, and no, they're like, Oh, wait. and they're like, why? And I was like, well, the new ones will come out in September. And they're like, really? And I'm like, well, although a lot of the features don't appeal, I mean, some people don't see the incremental right. features as more no, than they like don't. Chrome. No, right? and that's why if they you don't study it. You're like, well, it's a new color, right? It's like, well, right. no, it's not a new color. No. It's actually a whole better device. And so, even though there is a spike, they still sell. I don't know, 40 million of them every quarter. They'll sell. They'll sell 40 million, you know, or, or 10, 15 million of them this month. You know, in the month of August, in five weeks before the new ones come out, because there's t most people don't care about that. You know, in the same way that like uh, most people, including me, frankly, like I bought a two thousand. 2006 car in December of 2006, you know, the 2007s mm -hmm. were already out because uh, I didn't give a shit, you know, I didn't, I don't know what the difference was between the 2006, 2007, but I knew I'd, I'd I didn't give enough of a shit compared to the thousands of dollars it costs less. So exactly, right? Exactly. And and I think that there's an uh, awful lot of people who feel that way about their iPhone. They just don't care. They, they they accept. They know. I'm sure they believe that for people who are truly tuned in, like we are, that we know. Oh my God, there's you know, it's gonna the camera's gonna change from you know f 1.8 to f 1.6 or whatever. Uh, they don't give a shit. They don't even know what the hell that means. You know. You what's, the, what's the Merlin Man line? Isn't it something like uh, it has more megaflorps? Or yeah, megaflorps. Right? That exactly. Yeah. That's what people megaflorps. Think, you know? That's what. Uh, the, the thing I'll tell you. The one statistic that's that floored me. I still think about on a regular basis is when Jason Snell backed out the how many simultaneous production lines there has to be. That was Jason, right. right? I think it was. How many simultaneous production lines? Or no, there has to wasn't be? it Jean Louis Gasset? No. Was it him? Oh well, and I maybe Jason the two quoted of them, it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. yeah. One of those guys. But that how many simultaneous production lines have to be going to achieve the number because of the end-to-end -end time it makes to assemble an iPhone. So it was some thousands, right, yeah. that are being made simultaneously. And I thought that floored me more than like 40 million is a number. But when you're like, no, there are a thousand phones or more at the same time going down parallel production lines all over Foxconn plant. You're like, that is that is astonishing. Yeah. But that came out, you talked about, I don't want to get too deep, and I know we're near the end of the show, but is that you talked about that issue of the scaling. It's like any part you make, right. you can't come out with a certain kind of innovation anymore because it has to scale right. to hundreds of millions of times, has to work instantly. The availability is, has to be is so extraordinary. Um, 
it's going to be a problem they have for years now. I, I'm sure of it. It's you know, well, I think Huge I think issue. they're I think they're, they're I mean, we'll see how it goes, but I think they're they're with this D22 phone. I think that they're trying to get the wiggle their way out of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, it's like I said. I guess, <laughs> right, they're what, only going to sell fifty million of them instead of two hundred million or something, right? I don't know. I don't know. We'll <laughs> see. Uh, also, the other thing was that 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 year ago report that had the D twenty two code name also said that internally it was nicknamed Ferrari, which I huh. thought was uh, you know. And so, since they had the D twenty two, it certainly adds a lot of credibility that the Ferrari was a real nickname for it. And like I wrote on the mm-hmm. Fireball, Ferrari does not sound like does sound like a nickname for a product that might be a little bit more expensive. <laughs> I I really don't think it's going to be Ferrari expensive, huh. you know. Uh, but it, and I'm pr- I'm pretty sure I'm right that this is going to have a surprisingly high, or surprising to many people, high price. Uh, well, we shall see. Uh, last but not least, the other thing I had on on my list here was this uh, Facebook post from Vic Gundotra. Oh my god! Oh my god! So you may or may it's not like, remember catnip for you, <laughs> right? I still haven't linked to it from Daring Fireball because I haven't had time because I, I it's it's almost like. Is it, did this really happen? So Vic Gendotra used to work at Google, and he was the most fa- you know he was in charge of Android, or or not really in charge of it, but he was like he was the the ringleader of their keynote in 2010 when they most most harshly went after iPhone and Apple directly with you know just like uh, we you know if it wasn't for if it wasn't for us meaning Google and Android we'd live in a world where one man one company controls the future you know this sort of dystopian you know Steve Jobs controls everything. Uh, and 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 has all sorts of quotes over the years. I'll put some links in the show notes. But uh, more or less tearing into Apple for being closed and closed is bad and open is good. Uh, and he had a post on Facebook uh, where uh, pr- singing to high praises the the portrait mode on his iPhone Seven Plus. And uh, <laughs> here the the money line is bottom line. This is a quote. From Vic Gundotra, who's doing something else now. He's left Google a couple of years ago. If you truly care about great photography, you own an iPhone. If you don't mind being a few years behind, buy an iPhone. Oh, my God. It's so rude. It's true, but so it's also... The funny part to me was reading the comments. And he's obvious... I don't know how Facebook works exactly because I've never had a Facebook account. But this post is available. It's world-readable, world, world readable, so I could read it and I could see these comments. But there are an awful lot of people who follow him or whatever you do to people on Facebook who you know are in a circle, whatever the hell they have, uh, <laughs> who are obviously Android fans and they were... <laughs> He did not take this very well at all. But they're also deeply in denial. Like there was somebody who obviously fancies himself as a technical person, uh, you know, but somebody was trying to say that the Samsung S8 has the same feature and it's it's better implemented. Uh, the Samsung, I mean, whatever you want to say about the Samsung Galaxy S8 as a camera compared to the regular iPhone 7, maybe it's as good. I know that, that, that I'm sure it has a very good camera. I own a Google Pixel upstairs. The Google Pixel has an excellent camera. I, I don't... I, I I honestly don't know if it's better or worse than my iPhone Seven. I I'm familiar with the iPhone Seven, but I can see that they're technically on par with each other. You know, um, somebody cited the Pixel thing and that stupid DxO mark that ranked the Pixel as having the highest rated sensor in their 
history. That DXO mark thing is bullshit. It's total bullshit. <laughs> uh, the people pay to be in it. The reason that they, they rated the pixel before it even came out was because Google paid them to do it. It's a bullshit metric. And even if you believe the metric, it's only rating the sensor of the camera. It's not even telling you whether it takes good pictures or not. It's saying it as the best sensor. But it's obviously, it worked to Google's advantage where people who want to believe it took it as meaning that some independent right. firm has certified that the, the Google Pixel has the best camera on any phone. It doesn't. The iPhone 7 Plus has the best camera on any phone. And I say this as somebody whose daily phone, the phone I own, is an iPhone 7, not the 7 Plus, because I like the size I love better. the 7 Plus. But it hurts so my heart. Carry the 7 Plus is so yeah. much better as a camera. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And portrait mode a, is amazing. And it has, gotten, yeah. it has gotten so much better since it came out last year. The edge detection is so much better. But the Galaxy S8 camera, they do have a, they call it like fake bokeh mode or something. And it has something that tries to do it, but it all, it's, it's still just a one lens camera and it's doing it all with edge detection and it's all software. Whereas there's no optical aspect to it like there is with the iPhone. Yeah. His point he makes is, I mean, I think I think he, uh, I actually think that he um, isn't betraying what he said in the past. I think right. he did not like. It's clear the evolution of Android was not the direction he thought it would go. Um, and his statement in the Facebook post in reply to people are like, well, you know, when you don't control the hardware and uh, you got to make compromises in all the software, you can't do great things like this. Google was way ahead, and they really were. Google is way ahead. Um, Project Tango is really interesting, where it has a depth camera um, in addition to a regular camera. And I wouldn't be surprised if Apple adds um, actually a literally separate depth finding uh, uh, lens or uh, thing. Uh, it's, it's kind of well, it's not a lens, like a laser bouncing thing. But anyway, um, it's all. It makes a lot of sense to do that for uh, if you're trying to do uh, AR and uh, other kinds of uh, depth-based things. Uh, two lenses is good, and this is even better. So anyway, Google's has been more advanced in computational photography. They acquired, um, they acquired, sorry, they hired away the father of computational photography from Stanford. Um, you know, went to work there. I tried to interview him for an article. He said, "Yeah, let me talk to PR." And there's dead silence after that. Wasn't able to get him into a piece I did for. Uh, Fast Company last year about the future of computational photography, uh, and without being able to enforce and push stuff down low enough, uh, they can't do the stuff Apple can, and he admits it, and I think that's obviously, I don't know why he left uh, the team or what happened there, but um, it's clearly a point of frustration for him, and he's not wrong about the iPhone 7 Plus. I own one. I bought it specifically for photography, and I carry it, like, I have a nice mirrorless camera I really like, and I pick up the iPhone 7 Plus all the time. Now, when we had double rainbows the other day, we had a crazy 180-degree double rainbow weird weather thing. I grabbed my nice camera and a zoom lens and went out and shot all kinds of shots. And right. when I uh, was doing some other photography in a, a nature area near her, I brought my nicer cam my camera with the lens. But um, but the iPhone 7 Plus is, is the most fantastic um, cell phone camera you can get. I have the, uh, I think I mentioned this with Renee in a recent episode, but I still have the red, uh, when the red iPhones came out mid-year or mid-cycle, uh, Apple gave me a review unit. Very nice of them. I mean, I don't know what to do. I mean, you know I mean? It's exactly the phone I reviewed six months earlier, except <laughs> now it's red. Uh, you know, but that's nice. So I still have it. That's uh, the phone I, I, I've been using the iOS betas on all summer. Um, and because I'm running the betas on it, I took it. Uh, we had a, a family wedding down in South Carolina, and we were there for a week. We had a, a fam all family had a, rented a beach house, and it was very nice. And we 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 went to it was right near Charleston, which I'd never I'd never been to Charleston before. Beautiful city. Oh my God! If you ever have a chance to go to Charleston, South Carolina, it's truly truly 
uh, beautiful. And it's really interesting to me as a Philadelphian to see a city with roots from the exact same era of pre-colonial, you know, colonial times and, and to see certain things that are the same and certain things that are <laughs> so different uh, between Philadelphia and, and Charleston. But anyway, took, took, uh, took my Fuji X100S, which is, if you're not a camera nerd, it's not an SLR. It's, it, it doesn't even have detachable lenses as one lens, a 35 millimeter equivalent lens. Um, but a really, really nice mirrorless camera. It's one of, I really love it. I've, it's a couple years out of date. I think there's two, two successors already, but it really is a great camera. It takes great video and, um, really nice stills. And I took, uh, my regular iPhone and I also took the iPhone seven plus just because I was testing iOS betas at the time. Um, and so I took a portrait of Jonas in, in, in Charleston. It was just real nice light. Uh, I took a portrait of my son using the iPhone 7S or the 7 Plus and then took one with the X100S from the exact same spot, you know. And I did have to, I do have to say the, the X100S shot definitely looks better. I, I could see it. It's, you know, it is, there's no, you know, it, there's no shame in that. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a dedicated camera that cost me like $1,100. Um, but boy, oh boy, does the does the portrait mode get close? And boy, oh boy, does the portrait mode take a picture that looks so much better than than anything you can get with the regular iPhone Seven? Oh, and holy cow! Did you you know when the, the uh, after WWDC uh, when I went through uh, the the presentations and looked at what they were demoing or showing in presentations and then read stuff about the developers who were testing that that is going to be so amazing with the depth API added. Yeah, they're showing. I mean, uh, I think it's seven different distinct layers of depth that, uh, if yep. I'm remembering right, at least in the current version. Yep. Um, and just the idea of you'll be able to have bl- black and white background, color foreground, drop people into things, automatically do silhouetting, which is useful for all kinds of purposes. Um, the AR integration is, you know, relies on depth mapping. That's a whole other thing. But I think uh, the two, the two camera phone. I mean, I'm, I'm curious if the premium phone is going to have two cameras because it would be weird if it didn't, right? But um, I think it does. I think I think the premium phone it does. certainly will. My big question it has I, to. I don't think the rumor mill has answered it. Is are all of the new ones going to have dual cameras? Like, will the all rumor, the phones? Right. Like, I, I don't they know. Should if, it's not very. It's not very expensive to add a second camera at this point. I mean, well, they're building the camera system already. It's more about space. Yeah, and so far in the Plus era, meaning this starting with the iPhone 6, the, the, the Plus model has had a better camera than the non-Plus model. But every single right. year, the, non, the next year, the, non, the regular model gets whatever the one had before, whereas uh, uh, the first one was uh, optical image stabilization. And I think the iPhone oh, 6S... Yeah, yeah. The iPhone That's 6S right. got it, but it was it was optical right. image stabilization that only worked for stills and not video. But then the iPhone that when the when the 6S got it, the 6S Plus got optical image stabilization that works for video too. And then and then last year, now my the iPhone 7 has optical image stabilization that works with video, and that is one of the most striking things too. Where I did notice that where <clears throat> optical image stabilization on video on these phones is so unbelievably good. I realize, and, and I, so for example, on the X, my X 100 S doesn't have it. Um, and so the video in terms of the still quality of the frames of video, it's unbelievably beautiful, but because it doesn't have optical image stabilization or not optical image. Yeah. Optical image stabilization. Um, yeah, yeah. The video I shoot on my phone looks way better for like, you know, just typical, taking stuff on vacation, walking around, not, it's not on a tripod, it's handheld. Um, the smoothness of that makes it so much more, it, it looks, it, it, 
it, honestly, if you'd have shown it to somebody 10 years ago, it looks like professional video. Like there's no way, how could an amateur shoot video that you're walking down a sidewalk and it's not shaking? How could you, how could yeah, you get it? It was weird. I was shooting something. I was shooting something the other day and it was bizarre to me. I thought something was wrong with the camera because it was so smooth. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's uh, OIS. I was actually doing the right thing, but it was so smooth. It was, it felt like it wasn't tracking me correctly and it was just I think doing it the right I thing. I honestly think it's a bigger difference for consumer video than the move from standard def to high def. At least in terms, if you compare yes. it to the to the late, the last years of standard def, the quality. Like when Jonas was born, Jonas is thirteen, so uh, we got a video camera right before he was born. So it was like the the best, you know, mini DV was the tape technology. I got the best mini DV that I could. It was within my budget from Panasonic. Um, so like the first couple of years of his life, our video of him is all shot on a standard def. And, and, you know, you could see it. And the frame is four to three. It's not 16 to nine. But the quality's not that bad. It was really, you know, it, it really doesn't look so bad. Like when we watch our, those old movies now, the, the aspect ratio stands out more than the image quality. I mean, the image quality is there. You can see it. But I think that the biggest difference in consumer video is optical image stabilization because the video I shoot on my phone now, I, I, I'm just shocked sometimes at how, how smooth it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing, you know, where it really, where I got on this rant was I noticed it was, um, the clips app. I don't want to go on a long rant here. I know we've got to wrap up, but Apple's clips app doesn't, when you shoot video in clips, it doesn't have optical image stabilization. And it, it stuck out to me like a sore thumb when I oh. was making a, just a little clip of a family birthday of a mm-hmm. you know, second birth, second birthday of like a niece or a nephew. I forget whose birthday it was earlier this summer. I made shot a bunch of clips with it. And then when I watched it, I was like, this looks like shit compared to my usual videos. And then I realized that when you shoot a clip in clips and I confer, yeah. I wrote to Apple and confirmed it, which it doesn't use optical image stabilization. Whether oh. I, I don't know why. Oh, that's- might be it. Well, that's weird because you think you'd be pulling it out of the. Um, uh, I don't know. What's it called? The image. Uh, the, the ISO. No, what is it? The I. Uh, the I don't thing know. That does the uh, image processing on the. I don't know if it's. A, I don't weird. know if it's a battery thing or what. I, but the, you know, huh? It's interesting, but it really sticks out. And so, if you do this, if you just like, just in your house, just like shoot, use the camera app, take a video of yourself walking down a hallway, and then go back to the beginning. Go to the clips app. And do and reproduce the shot and try to hold the camera still and then put the two clips side by side and watch and you'll I guarantee you you will see the difference. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, my big hope, my big single biggest hope for the iPhone this year, and I don't think the rumors have answered it. I've, I've, if they are, somebody let me know. But I don't think we know yet whether the iPhone Seven S, if that's what they're going to call it, but the new four point seven inch new iPhone it has dual cameras or not, and I certainly hope it does. Because it's a huge, huge, uh, I, it's just a game changer. It's so great, and they've barely. T- I mean, the, the what Apple and third parties can do with it is, is really. It's we've barely seen anything. Computational photography for me. This is why I wrote the piece for uh, Fast Company last year. It's the most uh, exciting thing nobody mm-hmm. talks about because um, it requires. Uh, too much background to understand what the future might bring. So you have to see examples of real things happening and then be able to do it yep. yourself. And portrait mode yep. is a taste of that. But there's so many, there's so many things you can do because it gives you the ability, especially with two cameras that have different characteristics, you essentially can combine those uh, in a way that gives you almost like more f-stops you can um de-blur things because you have two images you can actually do interpolated de-blur there's like a million things that are uh that are super cool um 
and uh, and we're just we've seen one of them. We've seen HDR, which dates back years. That's a form of computational photography. Yeah. And now we're seeing this portrait mode, and there's like 50 other cool things that are gonna come that will be exciting as a photographer to use as an additional tool in your arsenal. Do you know what I've noticed too? I don't know if you have. Mm. I've, I've I noticed this summer, and I, I guess in shocking, you know, summer is when I'm out outside and not in my little cave. <laughs> But like I noticed with some shots we were at Disney World last month, uh, I noticed that I almost always now I, I have when you have HDR on it, I have it set so that it saves two, it still saves two versions of the photo, one with and one without. Um, and the reason that preference exists is that when it, when the iPhone first got HDR, sometimes it did some, sometimes it made the photo better, and sometimes it definitely didn't. Sometimes it would, there'd be like a weird double exposure type thing, or something would just look wrong in the HDR version. Uh, I'm on the cusp of just turning that preference off because whenever it's on, I always prefer HDR now. I can't find one in my last several hundred shots where I prefer the non-HDR version. Yeah, the, if if it takes an HDR shot, it's, there's a reason for it, and the non-HDR one is blown out or and they, but something they've, else. They've gotten wrong. better, though. They've gotten better yeah, at, oh, at avoiding it, and it's the sort of incremental improvements that nobody really sings the praises of. So if you're there on the HDR team at Apple's photo engineering we noticed. team, we noticed, and I think... Thank you for your blood. No, it's sweat true. I should turn that off too. I'm taking all these extra shots yeah. for no good reason. Yeah, That's I've got like... all these extra shots, and I realize now that I net. But I used to. I used to think, well, I yeah, but I you know, look at this one. This one looks weird with HDR, uh, and now I don't you know, see the, that anymore. The funny thing is that the one thing that I had to deal with recently, I was trying to take a very long. I wanted to take pictures of me printing uh, a time lapse, and I looked into Apple's options. You know, Apple's time lapse has this thing; it like dynamically adjusts, so it, it's always about the same length. When you're done, it just starts dropping frames yeah, and kind of yeah, reworks yeah. it. Um, so I used a, a what's it called? Frame, um, not frameolium. It's from our friends at uh, Studio Neat, uh, oh. Framographer, mm. which is I think is an old app. They still sell it, and it's actually was incredible. It's the interface seems a little outdated, so I think it maybe have made uh, for maybe for an earlier iOS version, um, and it's it's great. So I was able to do that with um, I used it with the uh, iPhone. Seven plus to get a better image, and um, you know, at one point recorded like seven hours, I think, or five hours, and wound up with a few minutes, and it just was fantastic to get a, you know. But I wanted it spaced a certain interval apart, as opposed to having it dynamically, you know, shrunk to a certain uh, to fit to a certain total length. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I imagine I imagine there was some laughter within Cupertino when this Vic and Dozer post passed around. Oh, it's okay. It's okay to have some shot in point it, but I think I mean it's great that he uh, yeah. came to see what the truth was. Well, right? between him and now with Steven Stanowski being probably one of the top three or four iPad proponents uh, in the world. Oh my god! So uh, outside funny. Apple, at least. Uh, I mean, he's only he's like right behind Federico Vidici. I mean, he's I mean that's how staunchly Steven Stanowski, who if you don't know the name, was uh, formerly at Microsoft and was sort of the brains behind the whole uh, Surface tablet thing. Um, you know, and left a, a couple of years ago. Uh, now is a huge, huge iPad proponent, um, and a good writer on the subject as well. But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, that's that's it for me. We got to we, We're going to run out of uh, tape here on the tape machine. That's right. No, the tape. That's right. The tape machine started to flap. Either that, or we'll flip it around, and go to side two. <laughs> anyway, Glenn, I thank you for your time. Uh, it's I, a pleasure. I it's cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of this book. Uh, Glog.glenf.com is is the main headquarters for your sprawling uh, empire of, of web presences. And then on Twitter, yeah, you you are Glenf, G-L-E-N-N-F. He's paid for the yeah, extra N. 
come for come for my fights with Eric Twi- Tw- Trump. Stay for the tweets about letterpress printing and uh, books from the eighteen hundreds. Personally, I don't know about you. Personally, <laughs> almost every single name where there's alternate spellings, I prefer the one with the extra letter. I like Gia. I like I like my Glens with two Ns. I like my Sarahs with an H, and I like my Johns with an H. Now, maybe I'm biased on the John issue, Uh-oh. but I, you know, like I, I like a Sarah with an H. If you're if That's you're out funny. there and you're an S A R A, I you know I still think it's a lovely name, but I I, I like the I like the extra letter, and I, I I'll tell you what I don't like a Glenn with only one N, untrustworthy. I know those go, those people. I know they have, I have problems with them. Shifty, in my opinion, in my experience, <laughs> I would I, I would never buy a car from a Glenn with one N. I'd walk right out of the dealer. 